from Simon & Schuster Audio The Art of Happiness by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Howard C. Cutler, M.D. Read by Howard Cutler with Ernest Abuba Featuring His Holiness the Dalai Lama I think this is the first time I am meeting most of you. But to me, whether it is an old friend or a new friend, there's not much difference anyway, because I always believe we are the same. We are all human beings. Moments before, I had found the Dalai Lama alone in an empty basketball locker room, waiting to address a crowd of 6,000 at Arizona State University. He was calmly sipping a cup of tea in perfect repose. But now he briskly rose and without hesitation left the room, emerging into the thick backstage throng of reporters, photographers, security personnel, and students. Finally, passing through a curtain, he walked on stage, bowed, folded his hands, and smiled. He was greeted with thunderous applause. At his request, the house lights were not dim, so he could clearly see his audience. And for several moments, he simply stood there, quietly surveying the audience with an unmistakable expression of warmth and goodwill. To those who had never seen the Dalai Lama before, his maroon and saffron monk's robes may have created an exotic impression. Yet his remarkable ability to establish rapport with his audience was quickly revealed as he sat down and began his talk. Brothers and sisters, I am very, very happy to be here with you. And most of you, this is the first time I think of meeting. But to me, whether it's an old friend or new friend, not much differences. I always believe we are the same human being. Of course, you see the different culture background and a different way of life, different how to say faith or different color, but we are same. We are, I think, the human being on the combination of human body and human mind. So therefore, our physical structure also same, our mind and also the emotional level also same. So therefore, wherever I meet some, you see, uh, some people, I always have the feeling that we are same. I'm just meeting one another Where human being, which just I like myself. I have the feeling that I'm encountering another human being just so, like myself. On that level, I find it is much easier to I communicate with others on that level. To if we emphasize the specific characteristics, like I am Tibetan or I am Buddhist, then there are differences. But those things are secondary. If we can leave the differences aside, I think we can easily communicate, exchange ideas, and share experiences. It was 1993. I had first met the Dalai Lama over a decade earlier while I was visiting Dharamsala, India, on a small research grant to study traditional Tibetan medicine. This beautiful and tranquil village perched on a hillside in the foothills of the Himalayas has been home of the Tibetan government in exile for almost 40 years ever since the Dalai Lama, along with 100,000 Tibetans, fled Tibet after the brutal invasion by Chinese forces. During my stay in Dharamsala, I had gotten to know several members of the Dalai Lama's family, 
and it was through them that my first meeting with him was arranged. Like so many other people, I came away from that first meeting in great spirits, with the impression that I had just met a truly exceptional man. As my contact with the Dalai Lama grew over the next several years, I gradually came to appreciate the many unique qualities of this man. He had a penetrating intelligence, but without artifice or cleverness, a kindness, but without excessive sentimentality, great humor, but without frivolousness, and the ability to inspire rather than awe. Over time, I became convinced that the Dalai Lama had learned how to live with a genuine sense of fulfillment and a degree of serenity that I had rarely encountered in other people, and I was determined to identify the principles that had enabled him to achieve this. I realized, of course, that many of his beliefs needed to be understood in the context of Buddhism, but I began to wonder if one could identify a set of his beliefs or practices that could be utilized by non-Buddhists as well, practices that could be applied to our lives to simply help us become happier, stronger, perhaps less afraid. With these thoughts in mind, I hoped someday to have the opportunity to discuss his views at length and to explore his approach to everyday living. Eventually, the Dalai Lama accepted persistent invitations to come to Arizona, where in addition to his lecture at Arizona State University, he gave an intensive five-day public workshop which was held in a desert setting near Tucson. I arranged to meet with him for long private interviews during his stay in Arizona, and these discussions later continued at his home in Dharamsala. These public talks and private conversations became the basis for much of this book. While I had looked forward to our private conversations with great anticipation, I discovered that we had some initial hurdles to overcome as we struggled to reconcile our differences in perspective. His as a Buddhist monk, mine as a Western psychiatrist. I began one of our first sessions, for instance, by posing to him certain common human problems, illustrating with several specific case histories and asking for his explanation and advice for dealing with these problems. I was taken aback when, after a long pause and reflection, he simply shrugged his shoulders, laughed good-naturedly, and said, I don't know. When I pressed the issue and I said it was my job as a psychotherapist to find out why people do the things they do, he laughed again and said that since an individual human mind is so complex, one may never have a full explanation of why a person does the things they do, and at any rate, it would be extremely difficult to try to figure out how the minds of five billion different people work. Sensing my discomfort with his response, he explained further. In trying to determine the source of one's problems, it seems that the Western approach differs in some respects from the Buddhist approach. Underlying all Western modes of analysis is a very strong rationalistic tendency and an assumption that everything can be accounted for. But in some instances, the basic premises and parameters set up by Western science can limit one's ability to deal with certain realities. For instance, you have the constraints of various fundamental premises, such as the idea that everything can be explained within the framework of a single lifetime, and you combine these with the notion that everything can and must be explained and accounted for. But this can cause problems when you come across some phenomena which you cannot account for, then there's a kind of tension created. It's almost a feeling of agony. 
I pointed out that in Western psychology, when we come across certain behaviors that on the surface are difficult to explain, we have certain approaches we can use, such as understanding the role of the unconscious or subconscious thought processes. In Buddhism, there is the idea of dispositions and imprints left by certain types of experiences, which is parallel to the idea of the unconscious. For instance, a certain type of event may have occurred in an earlier part of your life which has left a very strong imprint on your mind, which can remain hidden and then later affect your behavior. I think that Buddhism can accept many of the factors that Western theorists can come up with. But on top of that, it would add additional factors. For example, it would add the conditioning and imprints from previous lives. In Western psychology, however, I think that there may be a tendency to overemphasize the role of the unconscious in looking for the source of one's problems. So when you can't explain what is causing certain behaviors or problems, the tendency is to always attribute it to the unconscious. It's a bit like you've lost something and you decide that the object is in this room. And once you have decided this, then you've already fixed your parameters. You've precluded the possibility of its being outside. So you keep on searching, but you are not finding it. Yet you continue to assume that it is hidden somewhere in the room. While recognizing these differences between Eastern and Western outlooks, it soon became clear that the Dalai Lama does not feel that one has to adopt a Buddhist perspective when examining human problems. And by the end of our series of discussions, our cultural differences no longer seemed important as we explored the problems common to all human beings. When I initially conceived of the idea for this book, Exploring the Dalai Lama's Views, I envisioned a conventional self-help format in which the Dalai Lama would present clear and simple solutions to all of life's problems. Then, using my background in psychiatry, I could codify his views in a set of easy instructions on how to conduct one's daily life. But as our meetings progressed, I found that his approach was much broader and more subtle than I had imagined, incorporating all the nuance, richness, and complexity life has to offer. Gradually, however, I began to hear the single note he constantly sounded. It is one of hope. His hope is based on the belief that while attaining genuine and lasting happiness is not easy, it can be done. As his message unfolded, it became increasingly clear that his beliefs are not based on blind faith or religious dogma, but rather on sound reasoning and direct experience. His understanding of the human mind and behavior is based on a lifetime of study. His views are rooted in a tradition that dates back over 2,500 years, yet are tempered by common sense and a sophisticated understanding of modern problems. His appreciation of contemporary issues is the result of his unique position as a world figure, which has allowed him to travel the world many times, exposing him to many different cultures and people from all walks of life, and has enabled him to exchange ideas with top scientists and religious and political leaders. What finally emerges is a wise approach to dealing with human problems that is once optimistic and realistic. While omitting some discussions of the more philosophical aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, which can be found in a number of the Dalai Lama's other books, I have sought to present this unique and refreshing approach to a Western audience. Part 1. The Purpose of Life. Chapter 1 the right to happiness.
I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. That is clear. Whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we are all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. With these words spoken before a large audience in Arizona, the Dalai Lama cut to the heart of his message. But I wondered if lasting happiness, which in the West has always seemed so ill-defined, elusive, and ungraspable, was really a reasonable goal for most of us. Yes. I believe that happiness can be achieved through training the mind. When I say training the mind in this context, I'm not referring to mind merely as one's cognitive ability or intellect. Rather, I'm using the term in the sense of the Tibetan word sem, which has a much broader meaning, closer to psyche or spirit. It includes intellect and feeling, heart and mind. By bringing about a certain inner discipline, we can undergo a genuine transformation of our attitude, our outlook, and approach to living. Now, when we speak of inner discipline, it can, of course, involve many things, many methods. But generally speaking, one begins by identifying the factors which lead to happiness and those factors which lead to suffering. Having done this, one then sets about gradually eliminating the factors which lead to suffering and cultivating those which lead to happiness. That is the way. The purpose of our existence is to seek happiness. It seems like common sense, and Western thinkers from Aristotle to William James have agreed with this idea. But isn't a life based on seeking personal happiness self-centered, even self-indulgent? Not necessarily. Many surveys have shown that it is unhappy people who tend to be the most self-focused and are often socially withdrawn, brooding, and even antagonistic. Happy people, in contrast, are generally found to be more sociable, flexible, creative, and able to tolerate life's daily frustrations more easily. And most important, they are found to be more loving and forgiving than unhappy people. So scientific evidence, as well as our own experience, tells us that there is an intimate connection between personal happiness and kindness towards others. Our personal happiness needn't come at another's expense, as if somehow there were a finite quantity of happiness in the world. And the connection between personal happiness and kindness is reciprocal. Not only are happy people found to be more caring, but unhappy individuals who begin to consciously cultivate genuine compassion will find this a powerful antidote to their own problems. The Dalai Lama offers evidence of this in his own interactions with other people. In one conversation with him, I directly asked him if he was happy. He responded that he was. There was a quiet sincerity in his voice that left no doubt of this, a sincerity that was reflected in his expression and in his eyes. And throughout his week in Arizona, I often witness how his personal happiness manifested as a simple willingness to reach out to others, to create a feeling of affinity and goodwill, even in the briefest of encounters. One morning after his public lecture, he was walking along a patio on his way to his hotel room, surrounded by his usual retinue. He noticed one of the housekeeping staff standing by the elevators and paused to ask where she was from. For a moment, she appeared taken aback by this greeting from a foreign-looking man in maroon robes, 
and seemed puzzled by the deference given him by the entourage. Then she smiled and answered shyly, Mexico. He paused to chat with her for a few moments and then walked on, leaving her with a look of excitement and pleasure. The next morning at the same time, she appeared at the same spot with another of the housekeeping staff. The two of them greeted the Dalai Lama warmly as he got on the elevator, and he responded in turn. Every day after that, they were joined by a few more of the staff at the designated time and place, until by the end of the week there were dozens of maids in their crisp gray and white uniforms, forming a receiving line that stretched along the length of the path to the elevators. So we begin then with the basic premise that not only is the purpose of our life to seek happiness, but in fact we can find it. It is a vision of happiness as a real objective, one that we can take positive steps towards achieving. And as we begin to identify the factors that lead to a happier life, we will learn how the search for happiness offers benefits not only for the individual, but for one's family and society at large as well. Chapter 2. The Sources of Happiness Although it is possible to achieve happiness, happiness is not a simple thing. There are many levels. In Buddhism, for instance, there is a reference to the four factors of fulfillment, wealth, worldly satisfaction, spirituality, and enlightenment. Together, they embrace the totality of an individual's quest for happiness. Studies have revealed what is most often borne out by our personal experience. Happiness is determined more by one's state of mind than external events. Success may result in a temporary feeling of elation, or tragedy may result in a period of depression, but sooner or later our overall level of happiness migrates back to a certain baseline. So, if we tend to return to our characteristic baseline level of happiness, no matter what our external conditions are, what determines this baseline? And more importantly, can it be modified, set at a higher level? Let us leave aside for a moment ultimate religious or spiritual aspirations like perfection and enlightenment, and deal with joy and happiness as we understand them in an everyday or worldly sense. Within this context, there are certain key elements which we conventionally acknowledge as contributing to joy and happiness. For example, good health, the wealth that we accumulate, friendship or companions. We all recognize that in order to enjoy a fulfilled life, we need a circle of friends with whom we can relate emotionally and trust. Now all these factors are, in fact, sources of happiness. But in order for an individual to be able to fully utilize them, your state of mind is key. It's crucial. If we utilize our favorable circumstances, such as our good health or wealth, in positive ways, in helping others, they can be contributory factors in achieving a happier life. And of course, we enjoy these things. But without the right mental attitude, without attention to the mental factor, these things have very little impact on our long-term feelings of happiness. For example, if you harbor hateful thoughts or intense anger somewhere deep down, then it ruins your health. Also, if one is mentally unhappy or frustrated, then physical comfort is not of much help. On the other hand, 
If you can maintain a calm, peaceful state of mind, then you can be a very happy person, even if you have poor health, or even if you have wonderful possessions, when you are in an intense moment of anger or hatred, you feel like breaking them. At that moment, your possessions mean nothing. Today, there are societies that are very developed materially, yet among them there are many people who are not very happy. Just underneath the beautiful surface of affluence, there is a kind of mental unrest leading to frustration, unnecessary quarrels, reliance on drugs or alcohol, and in the worst case, suicide. So there is no guarantee that wealth alone can give you the joy or fulfillment you are seeking. The same can be said of your friends when you are in an intense state of anger or hatred. Even a very close friend appears to you as cold or distant. All of this indicates the tremendous influence that the mental state, the mind factor, has on one's experience of daily life. Naturally, then, we have to take that factor very seriously. While social, material, and possibly even genetic factors may play a role in happiness, there is general agreement among modern behavioral scientists that whether we are feeling happy or unhappy at any given moment is largely determined by our outlook. Surveys and studies have shown that once our basic survival needs are met, our level of life satisfaction often has little to do with our absolute conditions, but rather with how we perceive our situation, how satisfied we are with what we have. And, as the Dalai Lama notes, our outlook can be modified by deliberately developing an inner compassion and serenity that is unaffected by changes in material circumstances. So leaving aside the perspective of spiritual practice in terms of our enjoying a happy day-to-day -day existence, the greater the calmness of your mind, the greater your peace of mind, the greater your ability to enjoy a happy and joyful life. I, I should mention that when we speak of a calm state of mind or peace of mind, we shouldn't confuse that with a totally insensitive, apathetic state of mind. Having a calm or peaceful state of mind doesn't mean being totally spaced out or completely empty. Genuine peace of mind is rooted in affection and compassion. There is a very high level of sensitivity and feeling there. As long as there is a lack of the inner discipline which brings calmness of mind, no matter what external facilities you have, they will never give you the feeling of joy and happiness that you are seeking. On the other hand, if you possess this inner quality, a calmness of mind, a degree of stability within, then even if you lack various external facilities that you would normally consider necessary for happiness, it is still possible to live a happy and joyful life. Though the Dalai Lama's words resonated with me, Western culture is to a considerable extent based on material acquisition and our feelings of contentment are strongly influenced by a tendency to compare ourselves unfavorably with others and to continually long for more than we have. I think there are two kinds of desire. Certain desires are positive, a desire for happiness 
It's absolutely right. The desire for peace, the desire for a more harmonious world. Certain desires are very useful, but at some point desires can become unreasonable. That usually leads to trouble. Now, for example, sometimes I visit supermarkets. I really love to see supermarkets because I can see so many beautiful things. So when I look at all these different articles, I develop a feeling of desire. And my initial impulse might be, oh, I want this, I want that. Then the second thought that arises, I ask myself, oh, do I really need this? The answer is usually no. If you follow after that initial impulse, then very soon your pockets will empty. However, the other level of desire based on one's essential needs for food, clothing, and shelter is something more reasonable. Now, a feeling of self-satisfaction alone cannot determine if a desire or action is positive or negative. A murderer may have a feeling of satisfaction at the time he is committing the murder, but that doesn't justify the act. All the non-virtuous actions, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, and so on, are committed by people who may be feeling a sense of satisfaction at the time. The demarcation between positive and negative is not whether it gives you an immediate feeling of satisfaction, but whether it ultimately results in positive or negative consequences. For example, in the case of wanting more expensive possessions, if that is based on a mental attitude that just wants more and more, then eventually you'll reach a limit of what you can get. You'll come up against reality. And when you reach that limit, then you'll lose all hope, sink down into depression, and so on. That's one danger inherent in that type of desire. So I think that this kind of excessive desire leads to greed, an exaggerated form of desire based on over-expectation. And when you reflect on the excesses of greed, you'll find that it leads an individual to a feeling of frustration, disappointment, a lot of confusion, and a lot of problems. When it comes to dealing with greed, one thing which is quite characteristic is that although it arrives by the desire to obtain something, it is not satisfied by obtaining. Therefore, it becomes limitless, and that leads to trouble. The true antidote of greed is contentment. If you have a strong sense of contentment, it doesn't matter whether you obtain the object or not. Either way, you are still content. So how can we achieve inner contentment? One method is to obtain everything that we desire. All the money, houses, cars, the perfect maid and the perfect body. The Dalai Lama has pointed out the disadvantage of this approach. Sooner or later we will run up against something we can't have. The second and more reliable method is not to have what we want, but to want what we have. Each of us has the ability to make a conscious decision to limit the things that we want and to learn to acknowledge and appreciate what we already have. Another source of happiness closely linked with contentment 
is a sense of self-worth. And the Dalai Lama has very personal views on what we should base our sense of self-worth and how this helps one contend with upheaval and misfortune. Now, in my case, suppose I had no depth of human feeling, no capacity for easily creating good friends. Without that, when I lost my own country, when my political authority in Tibet came to an end, becoming a refugee would have been very difficult. While I was in Tibet, there was a certain degree of respect given to the office of the Dalai Lama, and people related to me accordingly, regardless of whether they had true affection for me or not. But if that was the only basis of people's relation towards me, then when I lost my country, it would have been extremely difficult. But there is another source of worth and dignity from which you can relate to other fellow human beings. You can relate to them because you are still a human being within the human community. You share that bond. And that human bond is enough to give rise to a sense of worth and dignity and can become a source of consolation in the event that you lose everything else. Generally speaking, you can have two different types of individuals. On the one hand, you can have a wealthy, successful person. If that person's source of dignity and sense of worth is only material, then so long as his fortune remains, maybe that person can sustain a sense of security. But the moment the fortune wanes, the person will suffer because there is no other refuge. On the other hand, you can have another person enjoying similar economic status and financial success, but at the same time, that person is warm, affectionate, and has a feeling of compassion. Because that person has another source of worth, another source which gives him or her a sense of dignity, another anger, there is less chance of that person becoming depressed if their fortune happens to disappear. Through this type of reasoning, you can see the very practical value of human warmth and affection in developing an inner sense of worth. The Dalai Lama points out that self-satisfaction, immediate gratification, is not always a reliable indicator of whether desire is positive or negative. This is linked to his views on the nature of pleasure. Now, sometimes people confuse happiness with pleasure. For example, not long ago I was speaking to an Indian audience at Rajpur. I mentioned that the purpose of life was happiness. So one member of the audience said that Rajneesh teaches that our happiest moment comes during sexual activity. So through sex, one can become the happiest. <laughs> so he wanted to know what I thought of that idea. I answered that from my point of view, the highest happiness is when one reaches the stage of liberation, where there is no more suffering. That's genuine, lasting happiness. True happiness relates more to the mind and heart. Happiness that depends mainly on physical pleasure is unstable. One day it's there, the next day it may not be. Every day we are faced with numerous decisions and choices. And try as we might, we often don't choose the thing that we know is good for us. This is related to the fact that the right choice is often the difficult one, the one that involves some sacrifice of our pleasure. 
Over the centuries, a legion of philosophers, theologians, psychologists, and researchers have struggled to define the role that pleasure should play in our lives. But none of us really need dead Greek philosophers, 19th century psychoanalysts, or 20th century scientists to understand pleasure. We know it when we feel it. The touch of a loved one, the luxury of a hot bath on a cold afternoon, the beauty of a sunset. But there is also pleasure in the frenetic rhapsody of a cocaine rush, the ecstasy of a heroin high, the revelry of an alcohol buzz, the bliss of unrestrained sexual excess, the exhilaration of a winning streak in Las Vegas. These are also very real pleasures that many in our society must come to terms with. Although there are no easy solutions to avoiding these destructive pleasures, we do have a place to begin the simple reminder that what we are truly seeking in life is happiness. As the Dalai Lama points out, that is an unmistakable fact. If we approach our choices by keeping that in mind, it is easier to give up the things that are ultimately harmful to us, even if they bring momentary pleasure. Frame any decision by asking yourself, will it bring me happiness? That simple question can be a powerful tool in helping us skillfully conduct all areas of our lives. Approaching our daily decisions and choices with this question in mind shifts the focus from what we are denying ourselves to what we are ultimately seeking, a stable and persistent happiness. With this perspective, it's easier to make the right choices because we are acting to give ourselves something, not denying or withholding from ourselves an attitude of moving toward rather than moving away, an attitude of embracing life rather than rejecting it. Chapter 3. Training the Mind for Happiness The first step in seeking happiness is learning. The choices and perceptions that create or destroy our happiness are all a product of our mental state. Once our basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter are met, we are left with a simple premise. We don't need more money. We don't need success, greater fame. We don't need the perfect body or even the perfect mate. Right now, at this very moment, we have a mind, which is all the basic equipment we need to achieve complete happiness. When we refer to mind or consciousness, there are many different varieties thousands of different thoughts or different minds. Just like external conditions or objects, some things are very useful, some are very harmful, and some are neutral. When dealing with external matter, we try to identify which substances are helpful so we can cultivate and use them. And those things which are harmful, we get rid of. Similarly, when dealing with various states of mind, we should take and nourish those which are helpful and try to reduce those which are harmful and negative. So, we first have to learn how negative emotions and behaviors are harmful to us and how positive emotions are helpful. Once you realize that, you become determined to cherish, develop, and increase those positive emotions no matter how difficult they are. There is a kind of spontaneous willingness from within. So through this process of learning, of analyzing which thoughts and emotions are beneficial and which are harmful, 
we gradually develop a firm determination to change feeling. Now the secret to my own happiness, my own good future, is within my own hands. I must not miss that opportunity. In Buddhism, the principle of causality is accepted as natural law. In dealing with reality, you have to take that law into account. So in the case of everyday experiences, if there are certain types of events which you do not desire, then the best method of ensuring that is to make sure that the causal conditions which normally give rise to that event no longer arise. Similarly, if you want a particular event or experience to occur, then the logical thing to do is to seek and accumulate the causes and conditions that would give rise to it. This is also the case with mental states and experiences. If we are seeking happiness, we need to clearly identify different mental states and make a distinction, classifying them according to whether they lead to happiness or not. Now, for instance, hatred, jealousy, anger are harmful. They destroy our mental happiness. Once you harbor feelings of hatred or ill-feeling towards someone, once you yourself are filled by hatred or negative emotions, then other people appear to you as also hostile. So as a result, there is more fear, greater inhibition and hesitation, and a sense of insecurity. If you maintain a feeling of compassion, loving-kindness, then something automatically opens your inner door. Through that, we can communicate much more easily with other people, and that feeling of warmth creates a kind of openness. It gives you a spirit of friendship. Then there's less need to hide things, and as a result, feelings of fear, self-doubt, and insecurity are automatically dispelled. There was an appealing logic to the Dalai Lama's thoughts. But I wondered, if happiness was simply a matter of cultivating more positive mental states, such as kindness and so on, why are so many people unhappy? Bringing about a transformation in one's outlook, one's way of thinking, is not a simple matter. It requires the application of many different factors from different directions. One shouldn't have the notion that there's just one key, a secret, and if you can get that right, then everything will be okay. It is similar to taking proper care of the physical body. You need a variety of nutrients, not just one or two. In the same way, you need a variety of methods to deal with the varied and complex mental states, and change takes time. There are a lot of negative mental traits, so you need to address and counteract each one of these. That isn't easy. But I think that as time goes on, you can make positive changes. Every day, as soon as you get up, you can develop a sincere positive motivation, thinking, I will utilize this day in a more positive way. I should not waste this day. And then at night, before bed, check what you've done, asking yourself, did I utilize this day as I planned? If it went accordingly, then you should rejoice. 
If it went wrong, then regret what you did and critique the day. So through methods such as this, you can gradually strengthen the positive aspects of the mind. No matter what activity or practice we are pursuing, there isn't anything that isn't made easier through constant familiarity and training. Through training, we can change. We can transform ourselves. Challenging as the Dalai Lama's prescriptions may sound, we are not only psychologically, but also physiologically designed to transform ourselves using just the methods he recommends. The systematic training of the mind the cultivation of happiness is possible because of the very structure and function of the brain. We are born with brains that are genetically hardwired with certain instinctual behavior patterns. We are predisposed mentally, emotionally, and physically to respond to our environment in ways that enable us to survive. These basic sets of instructions are encoded in countless innate nerve cell activation patterns. But the wiring in our brains is not static it's not irrevocably fixed. Our brains are also adaptable. Neuroscientists have documented the fact that the brain can design new patterns, new combinations of nerve cells and neurotransmitters, the chemicals that transmit messages between nerve cells, in response to new input, new thoughts, and experiences. In fact, our brains are malleable, ever-changing, reconfiguring their wiring according to new thoughts and experiences. Scientists called the brain's inherent capacity to change plasticity, and this remarkable feature appears to be the physiological basis for the possibility of transforming our minds. By mobilizing our thoughts and practicing new ways of thinking, we can reshape our nerve cells and change the way our brains work. Mental retraining involves changes in understanding as well as emotional changes. Although it may be natural for us to want to avoid suffering, in a world of sweeping changes and conflicting values, it may be necessary to re-educate ourselves about our own capacities for goodness and compassion, to distinguish between what Buddhism calls wholesome and unwholesome actions, and to behave accordingly. This is all part of the process of inner discipline described by the Dalai Lama, a discipline that includes attention to personal ethics. I think that ethical behavior is another feature of the kind of inner discipline that leads to happiness. Great spiritual teachers like Buddha advise us to perform wholesome actions and avoid indulging in unwholesome actions. Whether one's action is wholesome or unwholesome depends on whether that action or deed arises from a disciplined or undisciplined state of mind. A disciplined mind leads to happiness, and an undisciplined mind leads to suffering. And in fact, it is said that bringing about discipline within one's mind is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. When I speak of discipline, I'm referring to self-discipline, not discipline that's externally imposed on you by someone else. Also, I'm referring to discipline that's applied in order to overcome your negative qualities. I wondered why, if wholesome behavior naturally leads to happiness, and all of us want happiness, why should we need so much learning, training, and discipline to engage in more wholesome behaviors? Doing wholesome deeds may not come naturally. We have to consciously train towards it. Traditionally, it has been considered the responsibility of religion 
to prescribe what behaviors are wholesome and what are not. However, in today's society, religion has lost its prestige and influence to some degree. At the same time, no alternative such as secular ethics has come up to replace it. It is because of this I think we need to make some special effort and consciously work towards gaining that knowledge. Although I personally believe that our human nature is fundamentally gentle and compassionate, it is not enough. We must also develop an appreciation and awareness of that fact. And by changing how we perceive ourselves through learning and understanding, this can have a very real impact on how we interact with others and how we conduct our daily lives. Since we are born with an innate desire to achieve happiness and avoid suffering, and that does not have to be learned, it still seemed to me that the path of achieving happiness should be a more spontaneous and natural process, not requiring such extensive education and sophisticated knowledge. The Dalai Lama responded to this issue. The more sophisticated your level of education and knowledge about what truly leads to happiness and what causes suffering, the more effective you will be in achieving happiness. For example, in overcoming anger, although animals may experience anger, they cannot understand that anger is destructive. In the case of human beings, however, you have a kind of self-awareness which allows you to reflect and observe that when anger arises, it hurts you. Therefore, you can make a judgment that anger is destructive. You need to be able to make that inference. And you need other abilities, such as the abilities to judge the long-term and short-term consequences of your behavior and weigh the two. So in learning about how to eliminate the causes of suffering and achieve happiness, it is more complicated than, for instance, simply putting your hand in a fire and then being burned and just learning never to do it again. So it is because of these things that I think education and knowledge are crucial. One problem with our current society is that we have an attitude towards education as if it is there simply to make you more clever make you more ingenious. The most important use of knowledge and education is to help us understand the importance of engaging in more wholesome actions and bringing about discipline within our minds to affect changes from within to develop a good heart. Chapter 4 Our Fundamental Nature we are made to seek happiness. And it is clear that feelings of love, affection, closeness, and compassion bring happiness. The Dalai Lama's view that the purpose of human life is to seek happiness is closely linked to his belief that the fundamental nature of human beings is gentle and compassionate, that all beings possess an underlying state known in Buddhist philosophy as Buddha nature a state in which the mind is completely untainted by the negative emotions and thoughts that are the source of our suffering. I believe that every one of us has the basis to be happy, to access the warm and compassionate states of mind that bring happiness. In fact, it is one of my fundamental beliefs that not only do we inherently possess the potential for compassion, 
but that the basic or underlying nature of human beings is gentleness. Now, the Buddhist doctrine of Buddha, nature, provides some grounds for the belief that the fundamental nature of all sentient beings is essentially gentle and not aggressive. But there are also other grounds on which I base this belief. I think the subject of human affection or compassion isn't just a religious matter. It's an indispensable factor in our day-to-day -day life. So first, if we look at the very pattern of our existence from an early age until our death, we can see the way in which we are nurtured by others' affection. It begins at birth. Our very first act after birth is to suck our mother's or someone else's milk. That is an act of affection, of compassion. Without that act of mutual affection, that bond, we cannot survive. That's clear. Then our physical structure seems to be more suited to feelings of love and compassion. We can see how a calm, affectionate, wholesome state of mind has beneficial effects on one's health and physical well-being while negative states of mind, such as anger and hatred, are destructive to our health. We can also see that our emotional health is enhanced by feelings of affection. To understand this, we need only reflect on how we feel when others show us warmth and affection, or observe how our own affectionate feelings or attitudes automatically and naturally affect us. These gentler emotions and the positive behaviors that go with them lead to a happier family and community life. So, I think that one can infer that our fundamental nature is one of gentleness. And if this is the case, then it makes all the more sense to try to live a way of life which would be more in accordance with this basic gentle nature of our being. But if this is the case, one also naturally wonders why there is so much aggression and conflict in the world. Of course, anger, violence, and aggression may certainly arise, but I think it's only on a secondary or more superficial level, in a sense. It arises when we are frustrated in our efforts to achieve love and affection. They are not part of our most basic underlying nature. So although aggression can occur, I believe that these conflicts aren't necessarily because of human nature, but rather a result of the human intellect, unbalanced human intelligence, misuse of our imaginative faculty. I believe that our most fundamental nature is gentleness, and our intellect developed later in the course of human evolution. And if that human ability, that human intelligence, develops in an unbalanced way, without being properly counterbalanced with compassion, then it can become destructive. But I think it's important to recognize that if human conflicts are created by misuses of human intelligence, we can also utilize our intelligence to find ways and means to overcome these conflicts. When human intelligence and human goodness or affection are used together, all human actions become constructive. When we combine a warm heart with knowledge and education, we can learn to respect others' views and others' rights. This becomes the basis of a spirit of reconciliation that can be used 
to overcome aggression and resolve our conflicts. The Dalai Lama's view of the underlying compassionate nature of human beings seems to slowly be gaining ground in the West. Over the past two or three decades, there have been hundreds of scientific studies indicating that aggression and violence is not innate. It is not genetically programmed into human nature. Violent behavior is influenced by a variety of biological, social, situational, and environmental factors. Even though we have the neural apparatus to act violently, that behavior is not automatically activated. Most contemporary researchers in the field currently feel that we have the potential to develop into gentle, caring people or violent, aggressive people. The impulse that gets emphasized is largely a matter of training. Once we conclude that the basic nature of humanity is compassionate rather than aggressive, a relationship to the world around us changes immediately. Seeing others as basically gentle instead of antagonistic and selfish helps us to relax, trust, live at ease. It allows us to wake up each morning in an atmosphere of kindness rather than one of hostility and apprehension. It makes us happier. First Meditation on the Purpose of Life When life becomes too complicated and we feel overwhelmed, it's often useful just to stand back and remind ourselves that our overall goal is happiness. This can put our life back in proper context, allow a fresh perspective, and enable us to see what direction to take. The Dalai Lama's understanding of the factors that ultimately lead to happiness is based on a lifetime of methodically observing his own mind, exploring the nature of the human condition, and investigating these things within a framework first established by the Buddha over 25 centuries ago. And from this background, he has come to some definite conclusions about which activities are most worthwhile. His words, a summary of his beliefs, can be used as the basis of a meditation, as part of your own pursuit of happiness. Sometimes when I meet old friends, it reminds me how quickly time passes, and it makes me wonder if we've utilized our time properly or not. Proper utilization of time is so important. While we have this body, and especially this amazing human brain, I think every minute is something precious. Our day-to-day -day existence is very much alive with hope. Although there is no guarantee of one's future, there is no guarantee that tomorrow at this time we will be here. But still, we are working for that purely on the basis of hope so we need to make the best use of our time. I believe that the proper utilization of time is this. If you can, serve other people, other sentient beings. If not, at least refrain from harming them. I think that is the whole basis of my philosophy. So let us reflect on what is truly a value in life, what gives meaning to our lives and set our priorities based on that. The purpose of our life needs to be positive. We weren't born with the purpose of causing trouble, harming others. For our life truly to be of value, I think we must develop basic good human qualities, warmth, kindness, compassion. Then our life becomes meaningful and more peaceful, happier, 
Part 2. Human Warmth and Compassion Chapter 5. A New Model for Intimacy Within all beings there is the seed of perfection. However, compassion is required in order to activate that seed, which is inherent in our heart and minds. Satisfying and fulfilling human relationships is a key ingredient to a happier life, and I spent some time discussing the subject with the Dalai Lama. One afternoon, while sitting in a hotel lobby waiting for my meeting with him to begin, I'd been absently reading the personal section of a local alternative newspaper. Densely packed pages of people searching desperately to connect with another human being. Still thinking of those ads as I sat down to begin my session with the Dalai Lama, I asked if he ever got lonely. To my surprise, he said no. I asked him why that was. I think one factor is that I look at any human being from a more positive angle. I try to look for their positive aspects. This attitude immediately creates a feeling of affinity, a kind of connectiveness, and it may partly be because on my part there is less apprehension, less fear, that if I act in a certain way, maybe the person will lose respect or think that I am strange. So, because that kind of fear and apprehension is absent, there is a kind of openness. Loneliness is so pervasive in our society that I never expected to confront anyone who did not experience it. The Dalai Lama's explanation surprised me, and I wondered how one could develop that degree of comfort with other people, free from a fear of being disliked or judged by others, and maintaining that feeling of genuine connection with others to the point of never feeling lonely. My basic belief is that you first need to realize the usefulness of compassion. Once you accept the fact that compassion is not something childish or sentimental, realize its deeper value, then you immediately develop an attraction towards it, a willingness to cultivate it. And once you encourage the thought of compassion in your mind, once that thought becomes active, then your attitude towards others changes automatically. That will automatically reduce fear and allow an openness with other people. It creates a positive, friendly atmosphere. With that attitude, you can approach a relationship in which you, yourself, initially, create the possibility of receiving affection or a positive response from the other person. That kind of openness at least allows the possibility of having meaningful conversation with them, even if they are unfriendly at first. But without the attitude of compassion, if you are feeling closed, irritated, or indifferent, then you can even be approached by your best friend, and you just feel uncomfortable. I think that in many cases people expect the other person to respond to them in a positive way first, rather than taking the initiative themselves to create that possibility. I feel that's wrong and can act as a barrier that just serves to promote a feeling of isolation from others. So if you wish to overcome the feeling of isolation and loneliness, I think that your underlying attitude makes a tremendous difference, and approaching others with the thought of compassion in your mind is the best way to do this. In addition to our private discussions, the Dalai Lama had introduced the idea of compassion in his public talks as well. 
he explained in detail the importance of our compassionate interaction with other sentient beings and stressed the importance of understanding that life is made up of inextricable links to other people, both known and unknown, on whom we depend. I sat among the crowd of 1,500 people that afternoon, listening to him speak of these ideas, but for some reason I felt a certain instinctive resistance to what he was saying. Although I've always highly valued my family and friends, I've always prided myself on self-reliance and considered myself to be an independent person. Secretly, perhaps, I've tended to regard overly dependent people with a kind of contempt, a sign of weakness. Yet that afternoon, as the Dalai Lama spoke, something happened. As our dependence on others was not my favorite topic, my mind had started to wander and I found myself absently removing a loose thread from my shirt sleeve. As the Dalai Lama spoke about how we are all dependent on others' efforts and cooperation, I began to think about all the people who were involved in the making of my shirt. I started by imagining the farmer who grew the cotton. Next, the salesman who sold him the tractor to plow the field. Then the hundreds or even thousands of people involved in manufacturing that tractor, including the people who mine the ore to make the metal for each part of the tractor, and all the designers of the tractor. Then, of course, the people who processed the cotton and wove the cloth, the people who cut, dyed, and sewed that cloth, the cargo workers and truck drivers delivering it to the store, and the salesperson who sold it to me. It occurred to me that virtually every aspect of my life came about as a result of other people's efforts. My precious self-reliance was a complete illusion. As this realization dawned on me, I was overcome with a profound sense of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all beings. I felt a softening, something. It made me want to cry. The Dalai Lama's views about loneliness and human interconnectedness had been surprising and enlightening. But in discussing human relationships, it is clear that there are many different kinds of relationships, many different ways in which we can relate to one another. In Western culture, for instance, it is considered important to have one special person with whom you can share a deep intimacy, a person such as a lover or a spouse. I was curious about the Dalai Lama's personal background in this regard. Had his being raised as a monk and leader of a nation from a very early age, and even worshipped as a kind of deity, create a sense of distance and isolation from others? Did he regret his early separation from his family and the fact that he could not marry? Did he miss out on developing a deeper level of personal intimacy? And I wondered how his unique background and perspective might apply to our own intimate relationships. I never felt a lack of intimacy. Of course, my father passed away many years ago, but I felt quite close to my mother, my teachers, my tutors, and others. And with many of these people, I could share my deepest feelings, fears, and concerns. When I was in Tibet on state occasions and at public events, there was a certain formality, a certain protocol was observed, but that wasn't always the case. At other times, for instance, I used to spend time in the kitchen, and I became quite close with some of the kitchen staff, and we could joke or gossip or share things, and it would be quite relaxed, without that sense of formality or distance. Since I've become a refugee, I've never felt a lack of people with whom I can share things. And it's not just a matter of knowing people and having a superficial exchange, but really sharing my deepest problems and suffering. 
I feel this sense of intimacy, connection, of sharing with my friends, with many people. For instance, in the past, if I felt disappointed or unhappy with Tibetan government policy, or I was concerned with other problems, even the threat of Chinese invasion, then I would return to my rooms and share this with the person who sweeps the floor. From one point of view, it may seem quite silly, the Dalai Lama, the head of the Tibetan government, facing some international or national problems and sharing that with the sweeper. But personally, I feel it is very helpful because the other person participates and we can face the problem or suffering together. The influential British psychoanalyst John Bowlby wrote that intimate attachments to other human beings are the hub around which a person's life revolves. From these intimate attachments, a person draws his strength and enjoyment of life. There seems to be universal agreement among all researchers in the field of human relationships that intimacy is central to our existence and is a critical factor in promoting physical and emotional health and well-being. While researchers and scientists all agree on this fact, they can't seem to agree on an exact definition of intimacy. There is a vast spectrum of different definitions and models of intimacy, ranging from defining intimacy purely in terms of physical contact to describing it as the experience of connectivity, a relationship to everything around us. And definitions of the most ideal form of intimacy also vary from culture to culture and tend to dramatically change over time as well. Looking at all the different definitions of human intimacy and how our ideas of intimacy change over time and from place to place, one fact becomes clear. There are infinite variations among people with respect to how they can experience a sense of closeness. This realization alone offers us a great opportunity. It means that at this very moment we have vast resources of intimacy available to us. The Dalai Lama, for example, serves as an illustration of how an individual can develop deep and intimate relationships despite his role in life that might tend to set him apart from others or isolate him and his monastic upbringing which completely ruled out the possibility of forming the kinds of romantic personal relationships that are so sought after in Western culture. Today, so many of us are pressed by a feeling of something missing in our lives, intensely suffering from a lack of intimacy. This is particularly true when we go through the inevitable periods in our lives when we are not involved in a romantic relationship or when the passion wanes from our current relationship. There's a widespread notion in our culture that deep intimacy is best achieved within the context of a passionate, romantic relationship. This can be a profoundly limiting viewpoint, cutting us off from other potential sources of connection and the cause for much misery and unhappiness. But we have within our power the means to avoid this. Think of the personal column in the newspaper again. At the very moment that each person is composing his or her ad, struggling to find just the right words to bring romance into their lives and end the loneliness, many of these people are already surrounded by friends, family, or acquaintances, connections that can be easily cultivated into genuine and deeply satisfying human relationships. If what we seek in life is happiness, and intimacy is an important ingredient of a happier life, then it clearly makes sense to conduct our lives based on a model of intimacy that includes as many forms of connection with others as possible. The Dalai Lama's view offers such a model. 
a willingness to open oneself to many others, to family, friends, and even strangers, forming bonds based on compassion and one's common humanity. Chapter 6 Love, Marriage, and Romance I think that if one is seeking to build a truly satisfying relationship, the best way of bringing this about is to get to know the deeper nature of the person and relate to her or him on that level, instead of merely on the basis of superficial characteristics. In this type of relationship, there is a role for genuine compassion. On the other hand, a relationship built primarily on sexual desire, for instance, is like a house built on a foundation of ice. As soon as the ice melts, the building collapses. As a Buddhist monk, the Dalai Lama has developed satisfying relationships and found intimacy within the context of friendships. But studies have shown that marriage is one factor that can, in fact, bring happiness providing the intimacy and close bonds that enhance health and overall life satisfaction. I wanted to bring up the subject of marriage, a conventional source of happiness in our culture, and had planned to begin one discussion by soliciting his opinion about all the joys and virtues of romance and marriage. A chance encounter with a bickering couple immediately before our meeting, however, prompted me to ask him instead about why conflicts and problems seem to arise so often in marriages. Of course, when dealing with conflicts, there can be many factors involved. It can be quite complex. So when we are dealing with trying to understand relationship problems, the first stage involves deliberately reflecting on the underlying nature and basis of that relationship. So, first of all, one has to recognize that there are different types of relationships and understand the differences between them. For example, Leaving aside the issue of marriage for a moment, even within ordinary friendships, we can recognize that there are different types of friendship. Some are based on wealth, power, or position. In these cases, your friendship continues as long as your power, wealth, or position is sustained. Once these grounds are no longer there, then the friendship will also begin to disappear. On the other hand, there are friendships based on true human feeling, a feeling of closeness where there is a sense of sharing and connectiveness. That is what I would call genuine friendship. In the same way, if someone is running into problems with their spouse, it can be helpful to look at the underlying basis of the relationship. For example, you often find relationships very much based on immediate sexual attraction. When a couple has just met, seen each other on just a few occasions, they may be madly in love and very happy, but any decision about marriage made at that instant would be very shaky. Just as one can become, in some sense, insane from the power of intense anger or hatred, it is also possible for an individual to become, in some sense, insane by the power of passion or lust. A relationship based on that initial attraction is very unreliable and unstable because it is based on temporary phenomena. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise if that kind of relationship eventually runs into trouble. If the relationship is based only on sexual desire without a component of mutual respect, 
then the individual may be relating to each other not so much as people, but rather as objects, and the relationship becomes almost like prostitution, in which neither side has respect for the other. However, there is a second type of relationship which is also based on sexual attraction, but where the physical attraction is not the predominant basis of the relationship. In this second type, there is an underlying appreciation of the value of the other person, and you accord respect and dignity to that individual. And in order to establish that type of relationship, it is crucial to spend enough time to get to know each other in a genuine sense. Now, I've heard many people claim that their marriage has a deeper meaning than just a sexual relationship. That marriage involves two people trying to bond their lives together, share life's ups and downs together. If that claim is honest, then I believe that's the proper basis on which a relationship should be built. A sound relationship should include a sense of responsibility and commitment towards each other. I brought up the idea of romance and its importance in Western society. Not just the physical sex act, but the whole idea of falling deeply in love, that blissful state which is so glorified in popular films, literature, and culture. I was surprised by the decisiveness of his response. I think that leaving aside how the endless pursuit of romantic love may affect our deeper spiritual growth, even from the perspective of a conventional way of life, the idealization of this romantic love can be seen as an extreme. Unlike those relationships based on caring and genuine affection, this is another matter. It's something based on a fantasy, unattainable, and therefore may be a source of frustration. So on that basis, it cannot be seen as a positive thing. At first, I felt that the Dalai Lama was dismissing the idea of romance too lightly. Given his monastic background and training, it was understandable, perhaps, that he would take a dim view of romance. But in Western culture, the idea of romantic love has flourished for the past 200 years under the influence of the 19th century romantic movement. And long before that, the ancient Greeks had conceived of eros, romantic, passionate love, as an ancient desire for fusion with the lost half of the self. Many contemporary researchers feel that the capacity to experience the intense feeling of falling in love may be programmed into our genes at birth as a genetically determined component of mating behavior, created by the production of certain chemicals in the brain. And the psychological drives towards falling in love may be just as strong as the sensation of oneness with the loved one may echo the blissful experience of being merged with the mother in infancy. So romantic love is clearly a potent cocktail of cultural, biological, and psychological ingredients. However, somewhere along the road of Western civilization, the role of romance in an intimate relationship began to assume greater and greater importance, and the notion of a romantic relationship has gradually acquired an artificial quality, in that it is primarily fueled by fantasy, imagination, and the idealization of the other person. And all too often, when reality intrudes, and one discovers the inevitable human flaws of one's lover, the romantic, idealized vision of the other person evaporates, and the relationship is in danger of collapse. From this perspective, perhaps the Dalai Lama's view of romance is not far off the mark, and this is why he encourages us 
to examine the underlying basis of relationship, should we find ourselves in a relationship that is going sour. Sexual attraction, or even the intense feeling of falling in love, may play a role in forming an initial bond between two people, to draw them together. But like a good epoxy glue, that initial bonding agent needs to be mixed with other ingredients before it will harden into a lasting bond. Ingredients such as affection, compassion, and mutual respect as human beings. Chapter 7. The Value of Compassion I truly believe that compassion provides the basis for human survival, the real value of human life, and that without that, there is a basic peace missing, and a compassionate attitude is something that we can always carry with us. The development of compassion plays a far greater role in the Dalai Lama's life than simply as a means to cultivating a feeling of warmth and affection, a means of improving our relationships with others. It is an integral part of his spiritual path, a critical element in achieving the full realization of our spiritual potential. He further explained his views on the topic. Compassion can be roughly defined in terms of a state of mind which is nonviolent, non-harming, and non-aggressive. It is a mental attitude based on the wish for others to be free of their suffering and is associated with a sense of commitment, responsibility, and respect towards the other. In the Tibetan word sewa, there is also a sense of state of mind that can wish for good things for oneself. In developing compassion, perhaps one could begin with the wish that oneself be free of suffering, and then taking that natural feeling and cultivating it, enhancing it, and then extending it out to include and embrace others. Now, when people speak of compassion, there is often a danger of confusing compassion with attachment. So when we discuss compassion, we must make a distinction between two types. One kind is tinged with attachment, the feeling of controlling someone or loving them so that they'll love you back. This ordinary type of compassion is quite partial and biased because it is based on perceiving the other person as a friend or someone who is close to you. But this kind of love or compassion is unstable. If there is a change, a disagreement perhaps, or your friend does something to make you angry, then all of a sudden your mental projection changes. The concept, my friend, is no longer there. And your feeling changes, and you may even have a feeling of hatred. So that kind of love based on attachment can be closely linked with hatred. But there is a second type of compassion that is free from such attachment. That is genuine compassion. That kind is based on the rationale that every human being has an innate desire to be happy and overcome suffering just like myself. And just like myself, they have the natural right to fulfill this fundamental aspiration. On the basis of the recognition of this equality and commonality, you can feel compassion regardless of whether you view him or her as a friend or an enemy. It is based on the other's fundamental rights rather than your own mental projection. 
Making the distinction between these two kinds of compassion and cultivating genuine compassion can be quite important in our day-to-day -day life. For instance, in marriage, there is generally a component of emotional attachment. But if there is a component of genuine compassion as well, based on mutual respect, the marriage tends to last a long time. In the case of emotional attachment without compassion, the marriage is more unstable and tends to end more quickly. It seemed to me that it might be quite difficult to develop that kind of universal compassion, that kind of generic compassion divorced from personal feeling. And since love and compassion is a subjective feeling, and a person would experience the same feeling or emotional tone in either type, why was it so important to distinguish between the two? I think there is a different quality between the feeling of genuine love and compassion and love based on attachment. It's not the same feeling. The feeling of genuine compassion is much stronger, much wider. It has a very profound quality. For example, if you see an animal intensely suffering, like a fish writhing with a hook in its mouth, you might spontaneously experience a feeling of not being able to bear their pain. That feeling isn't based on a special connection with that particular animal, but simply on the fact that this being also has feeling, can experience pain, and has a right not to experience such pain. That kind of compassion is much more sound and more durable in the long run. I think that in one sense, one could define compassion as the feeling of unbearableness at the sight of other people's suffering. And in order to generate that feeling, one must first have an appreciation of the seriousness or intensity of another's suffering. So the more fully one understands suffering and the various kinds of suffering we are subject to, the deeper will be one's level of compassion. I noted that by definition, compassion involves opening oneself to another's suffering, sharing another's suffering. But I asked the Dalai Lama, why would we want to take on another's suffering when we don't even want our own and go to great lengths to avoid it? His response was unhesitating. I feel that there is a significant difference between your own suffering and the suffering you might experience in a compassionate state in which you take upon yourself and share other people's suffering. A qualitative difference. When you think about your own suffering, there is a feeling of being totally overwhelmed, a sense of being burdened, of being pressed under something, a feeling of helplessness. There's a dullness, almost as if your faculties have become numb. But in the case of compassion, the feeling is much different. You may still initially experience a certain degree of discomfort, but underlying the uncomfortable feeling is a very high level of alertness and determination because you are voluntarily and deliberately accepting another's suffering for a higher purpose. There is a feeling of connectiveness and commitment, a feeling of freshness rather than dullness. So mental attitude makes a tremendous difference. In recent years, there have been many studies that support the idea 
that developing compassion and altruism has a positive impact on many aspects of our physical health. Compassionate behavior also contributes to emotional health, as studies have shown that reaching out to help others can induce a feeling of happiness, a calmer mind, and reduce depression. While the scientific evidence backs up the Dalai Lama's position on the very real and practical values of compassion, we needn't rely solely on scientific studies and research. We can easily discover the links between caring, compassion, and personal happiness in our own lives and those around us. Second Meditation on Compassion in discussing various techniques to cultivate compassion, the Dalai Lama has often mentioned the vital role of empathy, the ability to imagine oneself in another's situation. One of the most effective techniques of developing empathy is to begin by looking for the most fundamental trait we all have in common with others, our humanity. The following simple exercise offered during one of the Dalai Lama's public talks elegantly crystallizes his thoughts on the subject of cultivating compassion. In generating compassion, you start by recognizing that you do not want suffering and that you have a right to happiness. This can be verified or validated by your own experience. You then recognize that other people, just like yourself, also do not want to suffer and they have the right to happiness. So this becomes the basis of your beginning to generate compassion. So, let us meditate on compassion today. Begin by visualizing a person who is acutely suffering, someone who is in pain or is in a very unfortunate situation. For the first three minutes of the meditation, reflect on that person's suffering in a more analytic way. Think about their intense suffering and the unfortunate state of that person's existence. After thinking about that person's suffering for a few minutes, next try to relate that to yourself, thinking that individual has the same capacity for experiencing pain, joy, happiness, and suffering that I do. Then try to allow your natural response to arise a natural feeling of compassion towards that person. Try to arrive at a conclusion, thinking how strongly you wish for that person to be free from that suffering, and resolve that you will help that person to be relieved from their suffering. Finally, place your mind single-pointedly on that kind of conclusion or resolution, and for the last few minutes of the meditation, try to simply generate in your mind a compassionate or loving state. Part 3. Transforming Suffering Chapter 8. Facing Suffering In the time of the Buddha, a woman named Kisukutami suffered the death of her only child. Unable to accept it, she ran from person to person, seeking a medicine to restore her child to life. The Buddha was said to have such a medicine. Kisit Gautami went to the Buddha, paid homage, and asked, Can you make a medicine that will restore my child? I know of such a medicine, the Buddha replied, but in order to make it I must have certain ingredients. Relieved, the woman asked, What ingredients do you require? 
Bring me a handful of mustard seed, said the Buddha. The woman promised to procure it for him, but as she was leaving, he added, I require the mustard seed to be taken from a household where no child, spouse, parent, or servant has died. The woman agreed and began going from house to house in search of the mustard seed. At each house the people agreed to give her the seed, but when she asked them if anyone had died in that household, she could find no home where death had not visited. In one house a daughter, in another a servant, in others a husband or a parent had died. Kisigatami was not able to find a home free from the suffering of death. Seeing she was not alone in her grief, the mother let go of her child's lifeless body and returned to the Buddha, who said with great compassion, You thought that you alone had lost a son. The law of death is that among all living creatures there is no permanence. It is clear from many of the Dalai Lama's speeches and remarks that compassion and suffering are closely linked in his philosophy. It is difficult to learn genuine compassion without understanding suffering, and we cannot fully understand suffering without directly confronting it first. And yet we have so many ways of denying or avoiding our problems, pain, and suffering. In beginning to learn how to deal with suffering, the story of Kisukutami is very instructive. Her insight into the universal nature of human suffering did not lessen the inevitable suffering that came from her loss, but it did reduce the suffering that came from struggling against this sad fact of life. Although the Dalai Lama believes that we may move towards happiness and freedom from suffering, we must begin that process by accepting it as a natural fact of human existence and courageously facing our problems head on. In our daily lives, problems are bound to arise. The biggest problems in our lives are the ones which we inevitably have to face, like old age, illness, and death. Trying to avoid our problems, or simply not thinking about them, may provide temporary relief. But I think that there is a better approach. If you directly confront your suffering, you will be in a better position to appreciate the depth and nature of the problem. If you are in battle, as long as you remain ignorant of the status and combat capability of your enemy, you will be totally unprepared and paralyzed by fear. However, if you know the fighting capability of your opponents, what sort of weapons they have, and so on, then you're in a much better position when you engage in the war. You might consider things like old age and death as negative, unwanted, and simply try to forget about them. But eventually these things will come anyway, and if you've avoided thinking about these things, when the day comes that these events occur, it will come as a shock, causing unbearable mental uneasiness. However, if you spend some time thinking about old age, death, and these other unfortunate things, your mind will be much more stable when these things actually happen. You have already anticipated that they will occur. There's really no avoiding the fact that suffering is a part of life. And of course, we have a natural tendency to dislike our suffering and problems. I think that ordinary people don't view the very nature of our existence to be characterized by suffering. <laughs> I mean, on your birthday, people usually say, Happy birthday. 
But actually, the day of your birthday was the birth of your suffering. But nobody says, happy birth of suffering day. Our attitude towards suffering becomes very important because it can affect how we cope with suffering when it arises. Now, our usual attitude consists of any intense aversion and intolerance of our pain and suffering. However, if we can transform our attitude towards suffering, adopt an attitude that allows us greater tolerance of it, then this can do much to help counteract feelings of mental unhappiness, dissatisfaction, and discontent. I think how you perceive life as a whole plays a role in your attitude about suffering. For instance, if your basic outlook is that suffering is negative and must be avoided at all cost, and in some sense is a sign of failure, this will add a distinct psychological component of anxiety and intolerance when you encounter difficult circumstances, a feeling of being overwhelmed. On the other hand, if your basic outlook accepts that suffering is a natural part of one's existence, this will undoubtedly make you more tolerant towards the adversities of life. And without a certain degree of tolerance towards our suffering, our life becomes miserable. Then it's like having a very bad night. That night seems eternal. It never seems to end. So, for me personally, the strongest and most effective practice to help tolerate suffering is to see and understand that suffering is the underlying nature of samsara, of unenlightened existence. Samsara, a Sanskrit term, is considered a state of existence characterized by endless cycles of life, death, and rebirth. This term also refers to our ordinary state of day-to-day -day existence which is characterized by suffering. All beings remain in the state, propelled by karmic imprints from past actions and negative delusory states of mind, until one removes all negative tendencies of mind and achieves a state of liberation. I mentioned to the Dalai Lama that the idea of the underlying nature of existence, at least our ordinary daily existence, which is characterized by suffering, and is basically unsatisfactory, sounded somewhat discouraging and pessimistic. When I speak of the unsatisfactory nature of existence, this is in the context of the overall Buddhist path. These reflections have to be understood in their proper context, which is within the framework of the Buddhist path. Unless this view of suffering is seen in its proper context, there is a danger of misunderstanding this type of approach as being rather pessimistic and negative. Consequently, it's important to understand the basic Buddhist stance towards the whole issue of suffering. We find that in Buddha's own public teachings, the first thing he taught was the principle of the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is the truth of suffering. A lot of emphasis is placed on the realization of the suffering nature of one's existence. The point that has to be borne in mind is that the reason why reflection on suffering is so important is because there is a possibility of a way out. There is an alternative. There is a possibility of freedom from suffering. By removing the causes of suffering, it is possible to attain a state of liberation, a state free from suffering. According to Buddhist thought, the root causes of suffering 
are ignorance, craving, and hatred. These are called the three poisons of the mind. These terms have specific connotations when used within a Buddhist context. For example, ignorance doesn't refer to a lack of information as it is used in an everyday sense, but rather refers to a fundamental misperception of the true nature of the self and all phenomena. By generating insight into the true nature of reality and eliminating afflictive states of mind, such as craving and hatred, one can achieve a completely purified state of mind, free from suffering. Within the Buddhist context, when we reflect on the fact that our ordinary day-to-day -day existence is characterized by suffering, this serves to encourage us to engage in the practices that will eliminate the root causes of our suffering. I began to sense how reflecting on our suffering nature could play a role in accepting life's inevitable sorrows, and even as a valuable method of putting our daily problems in proper perspective. But I was curious to hear how the Dalai Lama dealt with suffering on a more personal level, how he handled the loss of a loved one, for instance. The subject arose in one of his public talks when an audience member, clearly in pain, asked him how to handle a great personal loss such as that of a child. To some degree, that depends on one's personal belief. If someone believes in rebirth, then accordingly, I think there is some way to reduce sorry or worry. One can take consolation in the fact that the loved one will be reborn. For those people who do not believe in rebirth, then I think there are still some simple ways to help deal with the loss. First, you could reflect that if you worry too much, allowing yourself to be too overwhelmed by the sense of loss and sorrow, and if you carry on with that feeling of being overwhelmed, not only is it very destructive and harmful to yourself, ruining your health, but also it would not have any benefit to the person who has passed away. For example, in my own case, I have lost my most respected tutor, my mother, and also one of my brothers. When they passed away, of course, I felt very, very sad. Then I constantly kept thinking that it's no use to worry too much, and if I really loved those people, then I must fulfill their wishes with a calm mind. So I try my best to do that. So I think if you've lost someone who is very dear to you, that's the proper way to approach it. You see, the best way to keep a memory of that person is to see if you can carry on the wishes of that person. Initially, of course, feelings of grief and anxiety are a natural human response to a loss. But if you allow these feelings of loss and worry to persist, there's a danger. If these feelings are left unchecked, they can lead to a kind of self-absorption, a situation where the focus becomes your own self. And when that happens, you become overwhelmed by the sense of loss, and you get a feeling that it's only you who is going through this. Depression sets in. But in reality, there are others who will be going through the same kind of experience. So if you find yourself worrying too much, it may help to think of the other people who have similar or even worse tragedies. 
Once you realize that, then you no longer feel isolated as if you have been picked out. That can offer you some kind of condolence. The wish to be free of suffering is the legitimate goal of every human being. It is the corollary of our wish to be happy. Thus, it is entirely appropriate that we seek out the causes of our unhappiness and do whatever we can to alleviate our problems, searching for solutions on all levels, global, societal, family, and individual. But as long as we view suffering as an unnatural state, an abnormal condition that we fear, avoid, and reject, we will never uproot the causes of suffering or begin to live a happier life. Chapter 9, Self-Created Suffering and Change What type of future will come about to a large extent lies within your own hands in the present. It will be determined by the kind of initiatives that we take now. We have discussed the importance of accepting suffering as a natural fact of human existence and facing our problems directly and authentically. While some kinds of suffering are inevitable, others are self-created. With growing technology, the general level of physical comfort has improved for many in Western society. This has caused a critical shift in perception. As suffering becomes less visible, it is no longer seen as part of the fundamental nature of human beings, but rather as an anomaly, a sign that something has gone terribly wrong, a sign of the failure of some system an infringement on our guaranteed right to happiness. This kind of thinking poses hidden dangers. If we think of suffering as something unnatural, something that we shouldn't be experiencing, then it's not much of a leap to begin to look for someone to blame for our suffering. If I'm unhappy, then I must be the victim of someone or something, an idea that is all too common in the West. The victimizer may be the government, the educational system, abusive partners, a dysfunctional family the other gender, or our uncaring mate. Or we may turn blame inward. There's something wrong with me. I'm the victim of disease, of defective genes perhaps. By continuing to focus on assigning blame and maintaining a victim stance, we perpetuate our suffering and our related feelings of anger, frustration, and resentment. This is one way that we can create our own suffering, but we add to our own suffering in other ways also. All too often, for example, we perpetuate pain, keep it alive, by replaying our hurts over and over in our minds, elaborating and magnifying our injustices in the process. We can see that there are many ways in which we actively contribute to our own experiences of mental unrest and suffering. Although, in general, mental and emotional afflictions themselves can come naturally, often it is our own reinforcement of those negative emotions that make them so much worse. For instance, when we have anger or hatred towards a person and we keep on thinking about it over and over, then it feeds the hatred. It makes it very powerful and intense. We also often add to our pain and suffering by being very overly sensitive, overreacting to minor things and sometimes taking things too personally. So I think that to a large extent, whether or not you suffer depends on how you respond to a given situation. For example, 
Let's say the, that you find out that someone is speaking badly of you behind your back. If you react to this knowledge that someone is speaking badly of you, this negativity, with a feeling of hurt or anger, then you yourself destroy your own peace of mind. Your pain is your own personal creation. On the other hand, if you can refrain from reacting in a negative way, let the slander pass by you as if it were silent wind passing behind your ears. You would protect yourself from that feeling of hurt and feeling of agony. So, although you may not always be able to avoid difficult situations, you can modify the extent to which you suffer by how you choose to respond to the situation. Therapists sometimes call the process described by the Dalai Lama personalizing our pain, the tendency to narrow our psychological field of vision by interpreting or misinterpreting everything that occurs in terms of its impact on us. When this kind of thinking becomes a pervasive pattern and extends to include every comment made by our family or friends or even events in society at large, it can become a significant source of our misery. As Jacques Lusseron, a survivor of the Buchenwald concentration camp, wrote in later recounting his experiences in the camps, Unhappiness, I saw then, comes to each of us because we think ourselves at the center of the universe, because we have the miserable conviction that we alone suffer to the point of unbearable intensity. As we've discussed, problems invariably arise in our daily life, but problems do not automatically cause suffering. If we directly address a problem and focus our energies on finding a solution, for instance, the problem can be transformed into a challenge. If we throw into the mix, however, a feeling that our problem is unfair, we add an additional ingredient that can become a powerful fuel in creating mental and emotional suffering. The Dalai Lama spoke about how to deal with the problem of unfairness. There may be a variety of ways that one might deal with the feeling that one's suffering is unfair. We've already spoken of the importance of accepting suffering as a natural fact of existence. Tibetans, or those of a Buddhist background, may be able to better accept the reality of difficult situations by attributing it to karma, to negative actions committed in either this or a previous life. For those in the West who believe in the idea of a creator, of God, they may accept difficult situations easier by viewing them as part of God's creation or plan. They may be helped by the faith that even though the situation appears very negative, God is all-powerful and very merciful, and there may be some meaning behind the situation that they may be unaware of. For those with no religious beliefs, perhaps a practical scientific approach could help, a kind of examination of the situation without much emotional involvement. A rational objective analysis of difficult or problematic situations can be quite important, because with this approach you'll often discover that behind the scenes there may be other factors at play. For instance, if you feel that you're being treated unfairly by your boss at work, perhaps he may be annoyed by something else, an argument with his wife, 
that morning or something, and his behavior may have nothing to do with you personally, may not be specifically directed at you. Of course, one must still face whatever the situation may be, but at least with this approach, one may not have the additional anxiety that would come along with it. Often, our normal tendency is to try to blame our problems on others, on external factors. Furthermore, we tend to look for one single cause and then try to exonerate ourselves from the responsibility. It seems that whenever there are intense emotions involved, there tends to be a disparity between how things appear and how they really are. This practice involves looking at things in a holistic way, realizing that there are many events contributing to a situation. So, for instance, in general, if we carefully examine any situation in a very unbiased and honest way, we may realize that to a large extent we are also responsible for the unfolding of events. Through practices such as these, such as objectively analyzing our own contribution to problems, which we initially blame completely on others, one can begin to reduce the feeling of unfairness that is one of the most common sources of self-created suffering. In investigating the ways in which we contribute to our own experience of suffering, we conclude with one of the primary causes, resistance to change. In discussing this important topic, the Dalai Lama described the ever-changing nature of life. It's extremely important to investigate the causes or origins of suffering, how it arises. One must begin that process by appreciating the impermanent, transient nature of our existence. All things, events, and phenomena are dynamic, changing every moment. Nothing remains static. Meditation on one's blood circulation could serve to reinforce this idea. The blood is constantly flowing, moving. It never stands still. This momentarily changing nature phenomena is like a built-in mechanism. And since it is the nature of all phenomena to change every moment, this indicates to us that all things lack the ability to endure lack the ability to remain the same. And since all things are subject to change, nothing exists in a permanent condition, nothing is able to remain the same under its own independent power. Thus, all things are under the power or influence of other factors. So, at any given moment, no matter how pleasant or pleasurable your experience may be, it will not last. This becomes the basis of a category of suffering known in Buddhism as the suffering of change. The concept of impermanence plays a central role in Buddhist thought. As the Dalai Lama has noted, it serves to remind us that life is tenuous and our time must be used to one's best advantage. On a deeper level, the contemplation of the more subtle aspects of impermanence, the impermanent nature of all phenomena, begins the Buddhist practitioner's quest to understand the true nature of reality and through this understanding dispel the ignorance that is the ultimate source of our suffering.
But whether one looks at life from a Buddhist perspective or a Western perspective, the fact remains that life is change. And to the degree that we refuse to accept this fact and resist the natural changes of life, trying desperately to hold on to the past, for example, we will continue to perpetuate our own suffering. Chapter 10. Shifting Perspective The ability to look at events from different perspectives can be very helpful. Then practicing this, one can use certain experiences, certain tragedies, to develop a calmness of mind. The ability to shift perspective can be one of the most powerful and effective tools we have to help us cope with life's daily problems, both large and small. One must realize that every phenomena, every event, has different aspects. Everything is of a relative nature. For example, in my own case, I lost my country. It is very tragic, and there are even worse things. There's a lot of destruction happening in our country. That's a very negative thing. But if I look at the same event from another angle, I realize that as a refugee, I have another perspective. As a refugee, there is no need for formalities, ceremony, protocol. If everything were status quo, if things were okay, then on a lot of occasions, you merely go through the motions, you pretend. But when you are passing through desperate situations, there's no time to pretend. So from that angle, this tragic experience has been very useful to me. Also, being a refugee creates a lot of new opportunities for meeting with many people. People from different religious traditions, from different walks of life, those who I may not have met had I remained in my country. So, in that sense, it's been very, very useful. It seems that often when problems arise, our outlook becomes narrow. All of our attention may be focused on worrying about the problems, and we may have a sense that we are the only one that is going through such difficulties. This can lead to a kind of self-absorption that can make the problem seem very intense. When this happens, I think that seeing this from a wider perspective can definitely help realizing, for instance, that there are many other people who have gone through similar experiences and even worse experiences. This practice of shifting perspective can even be helpful in certain illnesses or pain. If you only look at that one event, then it appears bigger and bigger. If you focus too closely, too intensely on a problem when it occurs, it appears uncontrollable. But if you compare that event with some other greater event, look at the same problem from a distance, then it appears smaller and less overwhelming. The ability to shift perspective, the capacity to view one's problems from different angles, is nurtured by a certain supple quality of mind. The ultimate benefit of a supple and flexible mind is that it allows us to embrace all of life, to be fully alive and human. Following a long day of public talks in Tucson one afternoon, the Dalai Lama slowly walked back to his hotel suite. As he walked, a bank of magenta rain clouds spanned the sky, absorbing the late afternoon light and sending the Catalina Mountains into deep relief. 
the entire landscape a vast palette of purple hues. The effect was spectacular. The warm air was laden with the fragrance of desert plants, of sage, a moist, restless breeze holding the promise of an unbridled storm. The Dalai Lama stopped. For several moments, he quietly surveyed the horizon, taking in the entire panorama, finally commenting on the beauty of the setting. He walked on, but after a few steps, he paused again, bending down to examine a tiny lavender bud on a small plant. He touched it gently, noting its delicate form, and wondered aloud about the name of the plant. I was struck by the facility of his mind. His awareness seemed to move so easily from taking in the complete landscape to focusing on a single bud, a simultaneous appreciation of the totality of the environment as well as the smallest detail, a capacity to encompass all facets and the full spectrum of life. Every one of us can develop this same suppleness of mind. It comes about, at least in part, directly through our efforts to stretch our perspective and deliberately try on new viewpoints. This can result in a simultaneous awareness of the big picture as well as our individual circumstances, putting our experiences in proper proportion. This dual outlook, a concurrent view of the big world and our own little world, can act as an internal navigational system, guiding us towards ultimate fulfillment of both our own goals and larger societal goals. When you speak of adopting a wider perspective, this includes working cooperatively with other people. When you have crises, which are global by nature, for instance, such as the environment or problems of modern economic structure, this calls for a coordinated and concerted effort among many people with a sense of responsibility and commitment. This is more encompassing than an individual or personal issue. Of course, change must come from within the individual. But when you are seeking to find solutions to global problems, this requires the ability to address problems from various levels, the individual level, the community level, and the global level. Now, for instance, minimizing hatred is like internal disarmament. But internal disarmament must go with external disarmament. The whole world should be demilitarized. That is our ultimate goal. Of course, we cannot achieve this overnight. I think the realistic way is step by step. So on one level, we should be working towards developing inner peace. But at the same time, it's very important to work towards external disarmament and peace as well. Making a small contribution in whatever way we can. That's our responsibility. We've seen how there is a reciprocal relationship between a supple mind and the ability to shift perspective. A supple, flexible mind helps us address our problems from a variety of perspectives, and conversely, deliberately trying to objectively examine our problems from a variety of perspectives can be seen as a kind of flexibility training for the mind. In today's world, the attempt to develop a flexible mode of thinking isn't simply a self-indulgent exercise for idle intellectuals. It can be a matter of survival. Even on an evolutionary scale, the species that were most adaptable were the ones that survived and thrived. Life today is characterized by sudden, unexpected, and sometimes violent change. A supple mind can help us reconcile the external changes going on all around us. 
It can also help us integrate all of our internal conflicts, inconsistencies, and ambivalence. Without a pliant mind, our outlook becomes brittle and our relationship to the world is characterized by fear. But by adopting a flexible approach to life, we can maintain our composure even under the most restless and turbulent conditions and nurture the resiliency of the human spirit. Chapter 11 Finding Meaning in Pain and Suffering By realizing the nature of suffering, you will develop a greater resolve to put an end to the causes of suffering. If shifting perspective is one way to make life's trials and problems more bearable, another is to be able to find meaning in pain and suffering. As Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychiatrist imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II, once said, Man is ready and willing to shoulder any suffering as soon and as long as he can see meaning in it. In discussing how personal suffering can take on meaning, the Dalai Lama illustrates how suffering can be put to practical use within the context of the Buddhist tradition. In Buddhist practice, one can use one's personal suffering in a formal way to enhance compassion by using it as an opportunity for the practice of Tongling, or giving and receiving, a Mahayana visualization practice in which one mentally visualizes taking on another's pain and suffering and in turn giving them all of your resources, good health, fortune, and so on. So, in doing this practice, when you undergo illness, pain, or suffering, you can use that as an opportunity by thinking, may my suffering be a substitute for all the suffering of other sentient beings. By experiencing this, may I be able to save all other sentient beings who may have to undergo similar suffering. In describing this practice, if, for instance, you become ill and practice this technique, thinking, may my illness act as a substitute for others who are suffering from similar illness, and you visualize taking on their suffering and giving them your good health, I am not suggesting that you ignore your own health. However, once you do become ill, practices such as Tongling can make a significant difference in how you respond to the situation. Practicing Tongling meditation may not necessarily succeed in alleviating the real physical pain or lead to a cure in physical terms but it can definitely protect you from unnecessary additional psychological pain, suffering, and anguish. One can think, may I, by experiencing this pain and suffering, be able to help other people and save others who may have to go through the same experience? Then your suffering takes on a new meaning, as it is used as the basis for a religious or spiritual practice. And on top of that, in the cases of some individuals practicing this technique, that instead of being sorry and saddened by the experience, the person can see it as a kind of privilege. The person can perceive it as a kind of opportunity and, in fact, be joyful because this particular experience made him or her richer. Paradoxically, the ability to embrace and understand suffering, to find meaning in it or some practical value in it, becomes part of our pursuit of happiness. 
The Dalai Lama explains how, from a Buddhist perspective, for instance, our suffering acts as a kind of catalyst. Within the framework of the Buddhist path, reflecting on suffering has tremendous importance. Because by realizing the nature of suffering, you will develop greater resolve to put an end to the causes of suffering and the unwholesome deeds which lead to suffering. And it will increase your enthusiasm for engaging in the wholesome actions and deeds which lead to happiness and joy. By reflecting on suffering during the quieter moments in our lives, when things are relatively stable and going well, we may discover a deeper value, meaning, or purpose in our suffering. Sometimes, however, we may be confronted with kinds of suffering that seem to have no purpose, with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Physical pain and suffering often seems to belong to that category. But upon closer examination, even physical pain clearly has a purpose. In his book, Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants, Dr. Paul Brand, a world-renowned hand surgeon and leprosy specialist, explored the purpose and value of physical pain. Leprosy is a disease that causes loss of pain sensation in the limbs. And without the protection of pain, the leprosy patients lack the system to warn them of tissue damage. It is this that causes the horrible disfigurements. After describing his lifelong work with patients who suffer from lack of pain sensation and seeing the devastating effects, Dr. Brand gradually came to view pain not as the universal enemy, but as a remarkable, elegant, and sophisticated biological system that warns us of damage to our body and thus protects us. He feels that we may not be grateful for the experience of pain, but we can be grateful for the system of pain perception. And beyond that, he feels that not only can our attitude about pain change by understanding its meaning and purpose, but that change in attitude can actually lessen the degree to which we suffer when we are physically injured. Like many other researchers, he sees the difference between physical pain, which is a physiological process, and suffering, which is our mental and emotional response to the pain. We convert pain into suffering in the mind. To lessen the suffering of pain, we need to make a crucial distinction between the pain of the pain and the pain we create by our thoughts about the pain. It is well recognized that fear, anger, guilt, loneliness, and helplessness are all mental and emotional responses that can intensify pain. So, in dealing with pain, we can, of course, work at the lower levels of pain perception using the tools of modern medicine, such as medication, but we can also work at the higher levels by modifying our outlook and attitude. In seeking to discover an underlying purpose to our physical pain, Dr. Paul Brand makes one additional fascinating and critical observation. He describes many reports of leprosy patients claiming, now, of course, I can see my hands and my feet, but somehow they don't feel like part of me. It feels as if they were just tools. Thus, pain not only warns us and protects us, it unifies us. Without pain sensation in our hands and feet, those parts no longer seem to belong to our body, and that is associated with a kind of indifference to injury to them. In the same way that physical pain unifies our sense of having a body, the Dalai Lama reminds us that the general experience of suffering acts as a unifying force that connects us with others. Perhaps that is the ultimate meaning behind our suffering. It is the most basic element we share with others, the factor that unifies us with all living creatures. Third Meditation 
the practice of Tonglen. At the end of one of his sessions in Arizona, the Dalai Lama instructed the audience in the visualization practice of Tonglen. As we have heard, it is both an exercise for strengthening compassion and a powerful tool for helping transmute one's personal suffering. This afternoon, let us meditate on the practice of Tonglen, giving and receiving. This practice is meant to help train the mind to strengthen the force of compassion. This is achieved because Tonglin meditation helps to counteract our selfishness. It increases the power and strength of our mind by enhancing our courage to open ourselves to others' suffering. To begin this exercise, first visualize on one side of you a group of people who are in desperate need of help, those who are in an unfortunate state of suffering those living under conditions of poverty, hardship, and pain. Visualize this group of people on one side of you clearly in your mind. Then on the other side, visualize yourself as the embodiment of a self-centered person with a customary selfish attitude, indifferent to the well-being and needs of others. And then in between this suffering group of people and this selfish representation of you, see yourself in the middle as a neutral observer. Next, notice which side you are naturally inclined toward. See whether your natural feeling of empathy reaches out to the group of weaker people who are in need, or if it is inclined more towards that single individual, the embodiment of selfishness on the other side. If you look objectively, you can see that the well-being of a group or a large number of individuals is more important than that of one single individual. After that, focus your attention on the needy and desperate people. Direct all of your positive energy toward them. Mentally, give them your successes, your resources, your collection of virtues, and take upon yourself their suffering, their problems, and all their negativities. For example, you can visualize an innocent starving child from Somalia and feel how you would respond naturally towards that sight. In this instance, when you experience a deep feeling of empathy towards the suffering of that individual, it isn't based on considerations like, he's my relative or she's my friend. You don't even know that person. But the fact that the other person is a human being, and you, yourself, are a human being, allows your natural capacity for empathy to emerge, enabling you to reach out so you can visualize something like that and think, this child has no capacity of his or her own to be able to relieve himself or herself from his or her present state of difficulty or hardship. Then mentally take upon yourself all the suffering of poverty, starvation, and the feeling of deprivation, and mentally give your facilities wealth and success to this child. So, 
Through practicing this kind of giving and receiving visualization, you can train your mind. When engaging in this practice, it is sometimes helpful to begin by first imagining your own future suffering and with an attitude of compassion. Take your own future suffering upon yourself right now with the wish of freeing yourself from all future suffering. After you gain some practice, you can then expand the process to include taking on the suffering of others. When you do the visualization of taking upon yourself, it is useful to visualize these sufferings, problems, and difficulties in the form of poisonous substances, dangerous weapons, or terrifying animals, things that normally the very sight of which makes you shudder. So visualize the suffering in these forms and then absorb them directly into your heart. The purpose of visualizing these negative and frightening forms being dissolved into our hearts is to destroy our habitual selfish attitudes that reside there. However, for those individuals who may have problems with self-image, self-hatred, or low self-esteem, then it is important to judge for themselves whether this particular practice is appropriate or not. This Tonglin practice can become quite powerful if you combine the giving and receiving with the breath. That is, imagine receiving when inhaling and giving when exhaling. When you do this visualization effectively, it will make you feel some slight discomfort. That is an indication that it is hitting its target, the self-centered egocentric attitude that we normally have. Part 4. Overcoming Obstacles Chapter 12. Bringing About Change Our positive states of mind can act as antidotes to our negative tendencies and illusory states of mind. It is important to remember that the Dalai Lama's emphasis on recognizing the inevitability of suffering and the uses of suffering emerged from a fundamentally optimistic context, the Buddhist belief in the possibility of genuine transformation and change. Earlier, we mentioned that in seeking happiness, we begin by learning about how negative emotions and behaviors are harmful to us and how positive states of mind are helpful. But in discussing an approach to bringing about positive changes within oneself, learning is only the first step. There are other factors as well. Conviction, determination, action, and effort. Next, one transforms determination into action. The strong determination to change enables us to make a sustained effort to implement the actual changes. The final factor of effort is critical. Now, no matter what behavior you are seeking to change, no matter what particular goal or action you are directing your efforts towards, you need to start by developing a strong willingness or wish to do it. You need to generate great enthusiasm. And here, a sense of urgency is a key factor. 
For example, knowledge about the serious effects of AIDS has definitely created a sense of urgency that has put a check on a lot of people's sexual behavior. I think that often, once we obtain the proper information, that sense of seriousness and commitment will come. So, this sense of urgency can be a vital factor in affecting change, can give us tremendous energy. For instance, in a political movement, if there is a sense of desperation, there can be a tremendous sense of urgency. So much so that people may even forget they are hungry, and there is no feeling of tiredness or exhaustion in pursuit of their objectives. I asked the Dalai Lama if there was a particular Buddhist approach to help develop that sense of urgency. For a Buddhist practitioner to generate a sense of confidence and enthusiasm, we find in the Buddhist texts a discussion of the preciousness of human existence. We talk about how much potential lies within our body, how meaningful it can be, the good purposes it can be used for, the benefits and advantages of having a human form. Then, in order to generate a sense of urgency, to engage in spiritual practices, the practitioner is reminded of one's impermanence, of death. The awareness of impermanence is encouraged so that when it is coupled with your appreciation of the enormous potential of your human existence, it will give you a sense of urgency that I must use every precious moment. Given the Dalai Lama's view that one must generate a high degree of enthusiasm to affect positive changes in one's life, I asked him about his approach to overcoming apathy. He suggested first ruling out a physical or biological cause that may contribute to a feeling of low energy or laziness. Then he continued. To overcome apathy and generate enthusiasm, to overcome one's negative behaviors and states of mind, once again, I think the most effective method and perhaps the only solution is to be constantly aware of the destructive effects of the negative behavior one may need to repeatedly remind oneself of those destructive effects. Now, most people want to make positive changes in their lives, but sometimes we simply become habituated or accustomed to doing things in certain ways. And then we become sort of spoiled, doing only the things that we like to do, that we are used to doing. But... We can also use habituation to our advantage. Through constant familiarity, we can definitely establish new behavior patterns. So by making a steady effort, I think we can overcome any form of negative conditioning and make positive changes in our lives. But you still need to realize that genuine change doesn't happen overnight. Deep down, mental development takes time and a consistent effort. Because of the slow and gradual nature of change and transformation, I wondered what prevented the Dalai Lama from becoming discouraged or losing hope. As far as my own spiritual practice goes, if I encounter some obstacles or problems, I find it helpful to stand back and take the long-term view rather than the short-term view. In this regard, I find that thinking about one particular verse 
gives me courage and helps me sustain my determination. As long as space endures, as long as sentient beings remain, may I too live to dispel the miseries of the world. However, as far as the struggle for the freedom of Tibet is concerned, if I utilize that kind of belief, being prepared to wait as long as space endures for eons and eons and so on, I think that would be foolish. Here, one needs to take more immediate or active involvement. But even in the situation in Tibet, I think that viewing the situation from a wider perspective can definitely help. For instance, if I look at the situation inside Tibet from a narrow perspective, focusing only on that, then the situation appears almost hopeless. However, if I look from a wider perspective, a world perspective, then I see the international situation in which whole communist and totalitarian systems are collapsing, where even in China there's a democracy movement and the spirit of Tibetans remains high. So I don't give up. There's no doubt that in order to accomplish important goals, we need a strong driving mechanism to sustain us. Looking at the factors that motivate us to action, psychologists have identified three principal types of human motives. Primary motives are drives based on biological needs that must be met for survival, such as food, water, and air. Another category of motives involves our innate need for stimulation and information. The final category, called secondary motives, are those based on learned needs, such as the need for success, status, power, or achievement. These are acquired drives that can be influenced by social forces and shaped by learning. And it is at this level that modern psychological theories meet the Buddhist concept of developing determination and enthusiasm. In Buddhism, however, these acquired drives are not used only in the pursuit of worldly success, but in pursuit of higher goals, kindness, compassion, and spirituality, and develop as one gains a clearer understanding of the factors that lead to true happiness. Once we have built up a certain degree of drive and determination to make the changes necessary to live a happier life, we must then set about implementing these changes in our customary ways of thinking and acting. While science has recently revealed that one's genetic predisposition plays some role in an individual's characteristic way of responding to the world, most social scientists and psychologists feel that a large measure of the way we behave, think, and feel is determined by learning and conditioning, which comes about as a result of our upbringing and the various social and cultural forces around us. And since it is believed that behaviors are largely established by conditioning and reinforced and amplified by habituation, this opens up the possibility, as the Dalai Lama contends, of extinguishing harmful or negative conditioning and replacing it with helpful, life-enhancing conditioning. In eliminating one's negative emotions and states of mind, however, one question arises. Since these negative emotions seem to be a natural or integral part of our psychological makeup, is it really reasonable or practical to try to eradicate them? Yes. Some people suggest that anger, hatred, and other negative emotions are a natural part of our mind, and there is no way to really change these mental states. 
but that is wrong. Now, for example, all of us are born in an ignorant state. In this sense, ignorance is also quite natural. But as we grow through education and learning, we can acquire knowledge and dispel ignorance. And in that same way, through proper training, we can gradually reduce our negative emotions and increase positive states of mind such as love, compassion, and forgiveness. When speaking of these negative states of mind, I am referring to what are called Yangmeng in Tibetan, or Klesha in Sanskrit. This term literally means that which afflicts from within. It is often translated as delusions. It's easy to recognize the afflictive nature of these delusions simply because they have this tendency to destroy our calmness and presence of mind. But it's much more difficult to find out whether or not we can overcome them. That is a question that directly relates to the whole idea of whether or not it is possible to attain the full realization of our spiritual potential. That is a very serious and difficult situation. Now, in Buddhist thought, we have three principal premises on which we believe that can happen. The first premise is that all deluded states of mind, all afflictive emotions and thoughts, are essentially distorted in that they are rooted in misperceiving the actual reality of the situation. No matter how powerful, deep down these negative emotions have no valid foundation. They are based on ignorance. On the other hand, positive emotions or states of mind, such as love, compassion, insight, have a solid basis. When the mind is experiencing these positive states, there is no distortion. In addition, these positive factors are grounded in reality. They can be verified by our own experience. There is a kind of grounding and rootedness in reason and understanding, and this is not the case with afflictive emotions like anger and hatred. On top of that, all these positive states of mind have the quality that you can enhance them and increase them to a limitless degree if you regularly practice them through training and constant familiarity. The second premise on which we base the claim that our negative emotions can be rooted out and eliminated is based on the fact that our positive states of mind can act as antidotes to our negative tendencies and illusory states of mind. And as you enhance the capacity of these antidotal factors, the greater their force, the more you will be able to reduce the force of the mental and emotional afflictions. Within Buddhist practice, the cultivation of certain specific positive mental qualities, such as patience, tolerance, kindness, and so on, can act as specific antidotes to negative states of mind, such as anger, hatred, and attachment. But since these positive antidotes seek to eliminate only certain specific emotions, in some sense they can be seen as only partial measures. These afflictive emotions, such as attachment and hatred, are ultimately rooted in ignorance 
misconception of the true nature of reality. Therefore, in order to fully overcome all of these negative tendencies, one must apply the antidote to ignorance, the wisdom factor. The wisdom factor involves generating insight into the true nature of reality. So we not only have specific antidotes for specific negative emotions, for example, patience and tolerance act as specific antidotes to anger and hatred, but we also have a general antidote, insight, into the true nature of reality that acts as an antidote to all negative states of mind. It is similar to getting rid of a poisonous plant. You can eliminate the harmful effects by cutting off the specific branches or leaves, or you can eliminate the entire plant by uprooting it. The third premise is that the essential nature of mind is pure. It is based on the belief that the underlying basic subtle consciousness is untainted by negative emotions. Its nature is pure, a state which is referred to as the mind of clear light. That basic nature of the mind is also called Buddha nature. So since negative emotions are not an intrinsic part of this Buddha nature, there is a possibility to eliminate them and purify the mind. The Dalai Lama's method of achieving full potential and becoming happy is radically different from most Western approaches. While we're used to the idea, for example, of using psychotherapeutic techniques such as behavior therapy to attack specific bad habits such as smoking, drinking, or temper flares, we are not accustomed to systematically cultivating positive attributes, love, compassion, generosity, as weapons against all negative states. The Dalai Lama's method for achieving happiness is based on the revolutionary idea that negative mental states are not an intrinsic part of our minds. They are transient obstacles that obstruct the expression of our underlying natural state of joy and happiness. And these obstacles can be neutralized through the antidotes or the corresponding positive mental states. And when this discipline derived from Buddhist thought is viewed in the light of scientific evidence showing that we can change the very structure and function of the brain by establishing new conditioning that comes about by deliberately cultivating new ways of thinking, then the idea that we can achieve happiness through training of the mind seems a very real possibility. Chapter 13. Dealing with Anger and Hatred If one comes across a person who has been shot by an arrow, one does not spend time wondering about where the arrow came from, or the cast of the individual who shot it, or analyzing the type of wood the shaft is made of, or the manner in which the arrowhead was fashioned. Rather, one should focus on immediately pulling out the arrow. This observation of the Buddhas leads us to the next step in the Dalai Lama's approach to reshaping our minds and hearts. The Dalai Lama now turns to some of the arrows, the negative states of mind that destroy our happiness beginning with the discussion of anger and hatred. Generally speaking, there are many different kinds of afflictive or negative emotions, such as conceit, arrogance, jealousy, desire, lust, closed-mindedness, and so on. 
But out of all these, hatred and anger are considered to be the greatest evil because they are the greatest obstacle to developing compassion and altruism, and they destroy one's virtue and calmness of mind. Now, under rare circumstances, some kinds of anger can be positive. When motivated by compassion, it can act as a powerful force to bring about swift and decisive action. But generally speaking, anger leads to ill-feeling and hatred, and hatred is never positive. It has no benefit at all. It is always totally negative. The destructive effects of hatred are very visible, very obvious and immediate. For example, when a very strong or forceful thought of hatred arises within you, at that very instant it totally overwhelms you and destroys your peace of mind. Your presence of mind disappears completely. When such intense anger and hatred arises, it obliterates the best part of your brain which is the ability to judge between right and wrong and the long-term and short-term consequences of your actions. Your power of judgment becomes totally inoperable. It can no longer function. It is almost like you have become insane. Even at the physical level, hatred brings about a very ugly, unpleasant physical transformation of the individual. For reasons such as these, Hatred is compared to an enemy. This inner enemy has no other function than causing you harm, destroying us, both in the immediate term and the long term. It is your true enemy, your ultimate enemy. This is very different from an ordinary enemy. Although an ordinary enemy may engage in activities that are harmful to us, at least he or she has many other functions. That person has got to eat and sleep. He or she cannot devote 24 hours a day of his or her existence to this project of destroying us. On the other hand, hatred has no other function, no other purpose than destroying us. So realizing this fact, you should resolve that you will never give an opportunity for this enemy, hatred, to arise within you. We cannot overcome anger and hatred simply by suppressing them. We need to actively cultivate the antidotes to hatred, patience, and tolerance. When you are engaged in the practice of patience and tolerance, in reality, what is happening is you are engaged in a combat with hatred and anger. Since it is a situation of combat, you seek victory but you also have to be prepared for the possibility of losing that battle. So while you are engaged in combat, you should not lose sight of the fact that in the process, you will confront many problems. You should have the ability to withstand these hardships. Someone who gains victory through such an arduous process is a true hero. In some cases, People harbor strong feelings of anger and hurt based on something done to them in the past. And that feeling is kept bottled up. Under such circumstances, there is a Tibetan expression which says that if there is any sickness in the conch shell, if anything is blocking the shell, you can clear it out by blowing it out. Similarly, 
it is possible to imagine a situation in which due to the bottling up of certain emotions, it may be better to just let it out and express it. However, I believe that generally speaking, anger and hatred are the type of emotions which, if you leave them unchecked or unattended, they tend to aggravate and keep on increasing. So, if you work toward building inner contentment and cultivating kindness and compassion, this brings about a certain calmness of mind that can help prevent anger from arising in the first place. And then when a situation does arise which makes you angry, you should directly confront your anger and analyze it. Investigate what factors have given rise to that particular instance of anger or hatred. Then analyze further, seeing whether it is an appropriate response and especially whether it is constructive or destructive. And you make an effort to exert a certain inner discipline and restraint, actively combating it by applying the antidotes, counteracting these negative emotions with thoughts of patience and tolerance. It's clear that in seeking to eliminate anger and hatred, the intentional cultivation of patience and tolerance is indispensable. In our everyday life experiences, tolerance and patience have great benefits. For instance, developing them will allow us to be able to sustain and maintain our presence of mind. Although you may have experienced many negative events in the past with the development of patience and tolerance, it is possible to let go of your sense of anger and resentment. If you analyze the situation, you would realize that the past is past. So there is no use continuing to feel anger and hatred which does not change the situation, but just causes a disturbance within your mind and causes you continued unhappiness. Another benefit of responding to difficult situations with patience rather than giving in to anger is that you protect yourself from potential undesirable consequences which might come about if you reacted with anger. Because if you respond to situations with anger and hatred, not only does it not protect you from the injury or harm that has already been done to you, but on top of that, you create an additional cause for your own suffering in the future. Since patience or tolerance comes from an ability to remain firm and steadfast, and not to be overwhelmed by the adverse situations or conditions that one faces. One should not see tolerance or patience as a sign of weakness or giving in, but rather as a sign of strength coming from a deep ability to remain firm. Responding to a trying situation with patience and tolerance rather than reacting with anger and hatred involves active restraint which comes from a strong, self-disciplined mind. I think there is a very close connection between humility and patience. Humility involves having the capacity to take a more confrontational stance, having the capacity to retaliate if you wish, 
yet deliberately deciding not to do so. That is what I would call genuine humility. Now, when we talk about how one should develop tolerance towards those who harm us, one should not misunderstand this to mean that we should just meekly accept whatever is done against us. Sometimes you might encounter situations that require strong countermeasures. I believe, however, that one can take a strong stand and even take strong countermeasure out of a feeling of compassion or a sense of concern for the other, rather than out of anger. One of the reasons why there is a need to adopt a very strong countermeasure against someone is that if you let the harm or the crime that is being perpetuated against you pass, then there is a danger of that person habituating it in a very negative way, which, in reality, will cause that individual's own downfall and is very destructive in the long run for the individual himself or herself. So you can take countermeasures out of a feeling of compassion and concern for that individual. In Buddhism, a lot of attention is paid to our attitudes towards our rivals or enemies. This is because hatred can be the greatest stumbling block to the development of compassion and happiness. If you can learn to develop patience and tolerance towards your enemies, then everything else becomes much easier. Your compassion towards all others then begins to flow naturally. An end result of patience and tolerance is forgiveness. Fourth and Fifth Meditations on Anger Begin to work with the Dalai Lama's ideas on using patience and tolerance to neutralize anger and hatred through these two simple yet effective meditations. Fourth Meditation Let us imagine a scenario where someone that you know very well, someone who is close or dear to you, is in a situation where the person loses his or her temper. You can imagine this occurring either in a very acrimonious relationship or in a situation where something personally upsetting is happening. The other person is so angry that he or she has lost all of his or her mental composure, creating very negative vibrations, even going to the extent of beating himself or herself up or breaking things. Then reflect upon the immediate effects of this person's rage. You'll see a physical transformation happening to him or her. This person whom you feel close to, whom you like, the very sight of whom gave you pleasure in the past, now turns into this ugly person, even physically speaking. The reason why I think we should visualize this happening to someone else is because it is easier to see the faults of others than to see one's own faults. So using your imagination, do this meditation and visualization for a few minutes. At the end of that visualization, analyze the situation and relate the circumstance to your own experience. See that you yourself have been in this state many times. Resolve that 
I shall never let myself fall under the sway of such intense anger and hatred, because if I do that, I will also be in the same position. I will also suffer all these consequences, lose my peace of mind, lose my composure, assume this ugly physical appearance, and so on. So once you make that decision, then for the last few minutes of the meditation, focus your mind on that conclusion without further analysis. Simply let your mind remain on your resolution not to fall under the influence of anger and hatred. Fifth Meditation Begin by visualizing someone whom you dislike, someone who annoys you, causes a lot of problems for you, or gets on your nerves. Then, imagine a scenario where the person irritates you or does something that offends you or annoys you. And in your imagination, when you visualize this, let your natural response follow. Just let it flow naturally. See how you feel. See whether that causes the rate of your heartbeat to go up and so on. Examine whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable. See if you immediately become more peaceful or if you develop an uncomfortable mental feeling. Judge for yourself. Investigate. So, for a few minutes, three or four minutes perhaps, judge and experiment. And then at the end of your investigation, if you discover that, yes, it is of no use to allow that irritation to develop, immediately I lose my peace of mind, then say to yourself, in the future, I will never do that. Develop that determination. Finally, for the last few minutes of the exercise, place your mind single-pointedly upon that conclusion or determination. So that's the meditation. Chapter 14 Self-Hatred and Human Potential Of course we love ourselves. How can a person hate himself or herself? Buddhist philosophy has a well-entrenched methodology for dealing with hatred and anger that is directed outward. But the idea of self-hatred, of hatred turned inward, was astonishing to the Dalai Lama when he first heard of it. In fact, he only learned of the existence of self-hatred and its prevalence in Western culture during a conference with a group of Western scientists and psychologists held at his home in Dharamsala in 1991. As he became more familiar with the concept, he began to see ways in which the Buddhist doctrine could help one counteract this punishing impulse. When these people began speaking about self-hatred, at first I wasn't certain if I was understanding the concept correctly. Although I thought that I had some understanding of how the mind works, this ideal of hating oneself was completely new to me. The reason why I found it quite so unbelievable is that as practicing Buddhists, we are working very hard in trying to overcome our self-centered attitude, our selfish thoughts and motives. From this viewpoint, I think we love and cherish ourselves too much. So to think of this possibility of someone hating themselves was quite, <laughs> quite unbelievable. 
From the Buddhist point of view, being in a depressed state, in a state of discouragement, is seen as a kind of an extreme, which can clearly be an obstacle to taking the steps necessary to accomplish one's goals. A state of self-hatred is even far more extreme than simply being discouraged, and this can be very, very dangerous. For those engaged in Buddhist practice, the antidote to self-hatred would be to reflect upon the fact that all beings, including oneself, have Buddha nature, the seed or potential for perfection. Full enlightenment, no matter how weak or poor or deprived one's present situation may be. So those who suffer from self-hatred or self-loathing should avoid contemplating the suffering nature of existence or the underlying unsatisfactory nature of existence. And instead, they should concentrate more on the positive aspects of their existence, such as appreciating the tremendous potential that lies within oneself as a human being. And by reflecting on these opportunities and potentials, they will be able to increase their sense of worth and confidence in themselves. We are gifted human beings with this wonderful human intelligence. On top of that, all human beings have the capacity to be very determined and to direct that strong sense of determination in whatever direction they would like to use it. There is no doubt of this. So, if one maintains an awareness of these potentials and reminds oneself of them repeatedly until it becomes part of one's customary way of perceiving human beings, including oneself, then this could serve to help reduce feelings of discouragement, helplessness, and self-contempt. I think there might be some sort of parallel to the way we treat physical illness. When doctors treat someone for a specific illness, not only do they give antibiotics for the specific condition, but they also make sure that the person's underlying physical condition is such that he or she can take antibiotics and tolerate it. So, in order to ensure that, the doctors make sure, for instance, that the person is generally well-nourished, and often they may also have to give vitamins or whatever to build the body. So long as the person has that underlying strength in his or her body, then there is the potential or capacity within the body to heal itself from the illness through medication. Similarly, so long as we know and maintain an awareness that we have this marvelous gift of human intelligence and a capacity to develop determination and use it in positive ways. In some sense, we have this underlying mental health and underlying strength that comes from realizing we have this great human potential. This realization can act as a sort of built-in mechanism which allows us to deal with any difficulty, no matter what situation we are facing without losing hope or sinking into self-hatred. There is a popular notion in our culture, shared by many contemporary psychotherapists, that self-hatred is rampant within our society. 
And since we tend to view the world from the perspective of our own cultures, this has led to the assumption that it is a widespread human problem, possibly even an ingrained feature of the human psyche. But the very fact that the Dalai Lama was completely unaware of the very existence of self-hatred until fairly recently, and that it may be virtually unheard of in entire cultures, strongly reminds us that this troubling mental state, like all of the other negative states we have considered, is not an intrinsic part of the human mind. It is not something we are born with, irrevocably saddled with, nor is it an indelible characteristic of our nature. This realization alone can serve to weaken its power, give us hope, and increase our commitment to eliminate it. When first hearing of the concept of self-hatred, the Dalai Lama's initial reaction was, hate oneself, of course we love ourselves. For those who suffer from low self-esteem or self-hatred, or know someone who does, this response may seem incredibly naive at first glance. But on closer investigation, there may be a penetrating truth in his response. Love is difficult to define, and there may be many different definitions. But one definition of love, and perhaps the most pure and exalted kind of love, is an utter, absolute, and unqualified wish for the happiness of another individual. A heartfelt wish for the other's happiness regardless of whether he does something to injure us or even whether we like him. Now, deep in our hearts, there's no question that every one of us wants to be happy. So, if our definition of love is based on a genuine wish for someone's happiness, then each of us does, in fact, love himself or herself. Every one of us sincerely wishes for his or her own happiness. So perhaps the Dalai Lama was not far off the mark in his belief that all of us have this underlying self-love, and this idea suggests a powerful antidote to self-hatred. We can directly counteract thoughts of self-contempt by reminding ourselves that no matter how much we may dislike some of our characteristics, underneath it all, we wish ourselves to be happy. And that is a profound kind of love. Part 5. Closing Reflections Chapter 15. The Spiritual Life and Spiritual Values Religion should be a remedy to help reduce the conflict and suffering in the world, not another source of conflict. The art of happiness has many components. As we've seen, it begins with developing an understanding of the truest sources of happiness and basing our priorities in life on the cultivation of those sources. It involves an inner discipline, a gradual process of rooting out destructive mental states and replacing them with positive constructive ones, such as kindness, tolerance, and forgiveness. In identifying the factors that lead to a full and satisfying life, we conclude with a discussion of the final component, spirituality. There is a natural tendency to associate spirituality with religion. The Dalai Lama's approach to achieving happiness has been shaped by his years of rigorous training as an ordained Buddhist monk. He's also widely regarded as a preeminent Buddhist scholar. For many, however, it is not his grasp of complex philosophical issues that offers the most appeal, but rather his personal warmth, humor, down-to-earth approach to life, and his ability to relate to people as simply one human being to another. Despite his position as one of the most prominent religious figures in the world, it is clear that he does not regard adherence to any one religion as the only form of spirituality. I believe 
that it is essential to appreciate our potential as human beings and to recognize the importance of inner transformation. This should be achieved through what could be called a process of mental development. Sometimes I call this having a spiritual dimension in one's life. There can be two levels of spirituality. One level of spirituality has to do with one's religious beliefs. In this world, there are so many different people, so many different dispositions. There are five billion human beings, and in a certain way, I think we need five billion different religions. I believe that each individual should embark upon a spiritual path that is best suited to his or her mental disposition, temperament, belief, family, and cultural background. Now, for example, as a Buddhist monk, I find Buddhism to be most suitable. So, for myself, I found that Buddhism is best. But that does not mean Buddhism is best for everyone. The purpose of religion is to benefit people. And I think that if we only had one religion, after a while it would cease to benefit many people. If you had a restaurant, for instance, and it only served one dish day after day for every meal, that restaurant wouldn't have many customers left after a while. People need and appreciate diversity in their food because there are so many different tastes. In the same way, Religions are meant to nourish the human spirit, and I think we can learn to celebrate that diversity and develop a deep appreciation of the variety of religions. So, certain people may find Judaism, the Christian tradition, or the Islamic tradition to be the most effective for them. Therefore, we must respect and appreciate the value of all the different major world religious traditions. I think that one way of strengthening the mutual respect is through closer contact between those of different religious faiths, personal contact. I have made efforts over the past few years to meet and have dialogues with the Christian community and the Jewish community, and I think that some really positive results have come of this. Through this kind of closer contact, we can learn about the useful contributions that these religions have made to humanity and find useful aspects of other traditions that we can learn from. We may even discover methods and techniques that we can adopt in our own practice. All of these religions can make an effective contribution for the benefit of humanity. They are all designed to make the individual a happier person and the world a better place. However, in order for the religion to have an impact in making the world a better place, I think it's important for the individual practitioner to sincerely practice the teachings of that religion. You must integrate the religious teachings into your life, wherever you are, so you can use it as a source of inner strength. And you must gain a deeper understanding of the religion's ideas not just on an intellectual level, but with a deep feeling, making it part of your inner experience. There are so many things that divide humanity, so many problems in the world. Religion should be a remedy to help reduce the conflict and suffering in the world, not another source of conflict. 
so, it is essential that we develop closer bonds among the various religions. Through this, we can make a common effort for the benefit of humanity. During the Dalai Lama's week of public talks in Tucson, he spoke about his own practices of prayer and meditation, and ways to make the spiritual life part of one's inner experience. I think prayer is, for the most part, simple daily reminders of your deeply held principles and convictions. I myself repeat certain Buddhist verses every morning. The verses may look like prayers, but they are actually reminders. Reminders of how to speak to others, how to deal with people, how to deal with problems in one's daily life, things like that. So for the most part, my practice involves reviewing the importance of compassion, forgiveness, all these things. And of course, it also includes certain Buddhist meditations about the nature of reality and also certain visualization practices. So in my own daily practice, my own daily prayers, if I go leisurely, it takes about four hours. It's <laughs> quite long. The thought of spending four hours a day engaged in spiritual practices raised a question about how to make time for spiritual exercises and prompted one of the Dalai Lama's most enlightening observations about the limitless nature of a spiritual life. <laughs> 